You're listening to 5 O'Clock Seance. We're gathering bartenders, winemakers, distillers, and other industry professionals to pour a glass and take a look behind the veil of the spirits industry. We're having a seance. Let's talk spirits. Thank you guys for, for coming. Really, really glad you came on the show today. And uh, yeah, um, Gabe, you want to kind of introduce you guys, uh, let us know who you are and all that? Sure. Uh, I'm Gabriel. Um, sitting here with Matthew and Andrew, the three uh, owners of non-vintage wines and Tiridis sparkling wine. And uh, to sort of kick it off, we're going to un- uncap our Tiridis Blanc de Blanc. Um, so to sort of kick it off and tell you who I am, I uh, started non-vintage wines with Matthew and Andrew in sort of the hopes to bring superior wine selection to Eastern Washington and um, sort of our, let's say, uh, young career virgin palates. And um, from there, we kind of brainstormed on a, on a topic that we kind of all became really passionate about, um, which was sparkling wine in the state of Washington. And uh, that's kind of what we're here to talk about today, the future of that, what we've learned so far, and what we hope to uh, expect in, in the coming months. I love it. That's awesome. So kind of going back to the beginning then of, of non-vintage, how'd you guys all meet? Oh, this is a good story. I'll kick it over to Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, take this one. Uh, my name is Andrew Drew, by the way. One of the three owners of non-vintage wines in Tiridis. Pretty interesting, but conventional meat story. Uh, we're all graduates of Washington State University's Viticulture and Enology program. Uh, Matt and I started in the same year, fall of 2017, and we met through that. Then a couple years later, I think it was a year and a half, or maybe just a full year, uh, fall 2018, we Matt and I moved into apartments that were two away from each other, and so there was a balcony in between. And Matt and I were out on our balconies one day, and we were just talking across balconies, and this guy walks outside. It's Gabriel, by the way. Spoiler. Um, and he wiggles his way into our friend group, and so we end up hanging out with him. And then two and a half years down the line, we now own two businesses together. So yeah, um, he definitely forced his way into that yeah, friendship. Uh, and they're both fortunate that it happened, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think now, that's what we keep yeah. saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So... While I'm taking my first sip, what mm-hmm. uh, what are we drinking? So um, I guess there's, there's so many things that, that go into the wine, and it's so hard to describe them all at length. But a little bit what, what we're drinking right now is basically a traditional method um, sparkling wine from Washington. And um, the reason that we say it in this way and we don't use the direct French uh, comparison is that it is slightly different but the process is, is maintained. The, the action, actionable items in the process is the same. And um, Tiridis and sort of, so the root of non-vintage wines is based in sparkling wines. Um, there's four methods of making sparkling wine. The way that we do it is based in the um, champagne way. Um, a lot of people might not be exactly familiar with what the champagne method is, but they might understand that it's a quality process. And that's very, very true. But um, the key to understanding the champagne method is that the sparkling nature and the character that separates champagne method is, is basically that the bubbles are natural. Um, and what I mean by natural is that 
the yeast themselves, which uh, ferments sugars and turns them into carbon dioxide and ethanol, are um, natural yeast. They ferment sugars that are they're present in the beverage, and they convert those sugars into the carbonation. And that carbonation is all from a living organism. So the same carbon dioxide that you would breathe out as a person. And that sort of living embodiment encapsulated in a bottle is what kind of breathes life and sort of, let's say, um, delectable interest into sparkling wine. So uh, we do traditional method, um, and that's sort of the birthplace of Tiridis. And um, we all kind of worked as a team for several weeks to try to name Tiridis and, and sort of decipher what we wanted to call it. And uh, a big thing, a big funny thing in the winery in the wine industry is that almost every name that you could imagine is taken by a wine brand, <laughs> especially any name that has um, sort of a mystique or uh, sounds good. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like uh, riveting or something that you know uh, delectable. It's almost always taken by some large corporation. <laughs> so um, when we were working together, we already had non-vintage wines, which um, you know the name non-vintage wines is actually a category of wine as well, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it's a blend of multi years, and and we use that very often in that term in non vintage wines. But we knew that we needed to come up with something unique, um, but not only unique in the fact that yeah, it's it's to us unique, but also that we can explain it in a really simple and interesting way. So we came up with this this, this word tiridis, and um, tiridis is super interesting because it splits three way three ways. Um, we got three partners. That's really cool. There's some there's symmetry there, but Legitimately, Tiridis stands for um, tirage. That's the T-I-R uh, spelling of the name. Tirage is, is a fanciful French term for the bottling of a still base wine, so still sparkling wine, um, the liqueur that's the sweetener to the wine, and then the yeast, um, which is called the, the PDQ. And that yeast, sugar, and wine is all mixed together rather rapidly and put into the bottle. And it sets it up for the next process, which is um, basically riddling. So that, that yeast will sort of formulate a little bit of chaos and after that, that fermentation and um, an aging process that's unique to the quality of traditional methods sparkling wines, that'll go into a process called riddling. <laughs> um, Matthew and myself uh, kind of wanted to always be, be riddlers, <laughs> as, as funny as that sounded. Um, and, it, and, you know, it's often spoken about, you know, the romance of being a riddler in champagne. And basically all this job is, is you're taking a flat bottle, very flat, um, they're called on, on lats. And um, you take that bottle and you slowly rotate it. Some people rotate it in quarter turns, eighth turns, 16th turns, 30, 32nd turns. And um, you're slowly rotating that bottle and it basically sweeps all the yeast into the neck of the bottle. So you're going it from flat to on, to on point. And um, that's the riddling process. And, you know, I think Matthew and, and myself sort of imagined walking, you know, through a large cellar or a cave and sort of riddling all day and how, how romantic it could be. Um, since then, we've riddled a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and we've gotten some more experience on doing it. Um, it's still fun and it's still romantic to it, but it's a definite process and it's and it's a quality process. And that's another thing that kind of brings sort of heart, like a, like a heart connection to the wine for me at least, is that, you know, it's often time that you can start removing yourself away as you automate processes as yeah. a winemaker. 
especially sure. now um, with labor shortages and everything else. But every single bottle of Tiridus I touch easily over a hundred times. And I can say that for no other wine I've ever been involved with. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the RID part of um, Tiridus. So uh, the last part I'll kick over to Matthew because he actually recently just, just did some of this for <laughs> yeah. us. So, so the, the final part, uh, DIS, is disgorgement, which is now that you've had all that yeast and it's made its way down into the, the tip of the bottle, the neck, um, you, you have this perfect product that's sparkling and it looks good, but it has all this stuff left in it. Um, so after you finish the riddling, it comes to the tip and you can take that bottle now and pretty much just freeze the neck of the bottle and the yeast and all the other components that are stuck left in the bottle are frozen into a solid puck. And you can take that frozen puck, take the, fro the bottle that's been frozen, and you do what's called disgorging, which is basically opening the bottle. And because of the pressure that's built up in the bottle, it shoots the puck of yeast out very forcefully. Um, kind of cool to see, cool to do, uh, very cold thumbs. Mm -hmm. um, and now that that shoots out, majority of the liquid, if not all, remains in the bottle. So you are able to completely clean the uh, clean the wine um, and not lose any of it. So you get this perfect product um, without having to filter or find anything. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I love I love the dedication you guys have to really the the classic traditional craft of it. Yeah. Um, I feel it's like a there's a lot of people in Washington claiming that they're making something and say like a champagne style or something mm -hmm. like that but i don't feel like a lot of people are taking it necessarily to the same level yeah um there's no other way to do it yeah there's there's a lot of ways to yeah. get to get there and i think that especially andrew can speak to this but there's like a certain um there's a certain layering that sparkling wine has because there's a lot of precision to it a lot of science behind it mm -hmm. and that's something that we wanted to utilize um, from our education at, at Washington State University and from what we started to learn at non-vintage wines when we tasted Washington sparkling wine. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so sparkling wine is arguably one of the most precise types of winemaking there is because you aren't just making a finished wine. You're taking it three steps beyond that. And in our case, we're taking it three steps with the tirage, riddling, and disgorgement. Um, but everything is to the millionth place like the amount of sugar you put in there is going to determine the amount of carbonation. And then the amount of carbonation is going to determine how you perceive the flavors and the aromatics and all that in the wine. So every little minute thing that you do during the winemaking process has a huge influence on the product. Whereas in general winemaking, when making still wines, although you have to be very precise in the winemaking, it doesn't have such significant effects and contributions to the final product where the bubbles is the most important part of a sparkling wine. So you have to be yeah. super precise. And with us starting non-vintage wines right after school, we really felt like we had to utilize as much of our education as possible so it didn't go to waste. So we were like, what's the most precise kind of style of winemaking that we can do just to do as much as possible with this and like use as much as possible in the smallest place possible, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, there's like a common French adage where like every every wine's faults are always exposed best if it's sparkled. And that's very, very true because it's a highlighter of anything. And 
um, sparkling base wine is something that the three of us have had such trouble at getting really masterful at using. And we have many more years to come, hopefully many more uh, great years to come with blending sparkling wine bases. And um, the reason it's such a challenge is that magnification is so hard to see, especially when all you have to see it is your nose and your mm-hmm. mouth. And most people aren't trained to do that. And we're, we're still learning. I also want to point out that tasting sparkling wine bases yeah. is probably one of the worst thing you'll ever do in your life. Oh yeah. They're crazy acidic, like- relatively low alcohol. So it's, it's just burning your palate continuously. And the last thing you want to do is have another <laughs> sip of it. So it's just like kind of pulling you down and you're just trying to stay afloat and trying to get through this tasting to create these wonderful base wine blends. And, sure. And it's very difficult to be able to predict what the final product is going to taste like when you're blending these base wines. So you have to go through many, many trials of, you know, X amount of base wine with X amount of this other blend that we have or this other uh, base wine we have. So during 2021 harvest, um, we was the first harvest that we got together as a group and we decided that we were going to make more and more base wines specifically for Tiridis and some new wines that we were trying to really blend. And we can speak to how we want to showcase Washington in a bit when we open our second bottle. Um, But I would often have the experience during harvest where people would be like, what are you doing? You can't be, you can't be serious. Um, you know, this is, it's too rough. You're, you know, and, and that tough stuff, but you know, at least for, for me and my sense about sparkling wine right now, it's, it's almost nothing to do with, um, the way it smells. And I know that sounds, sounds crazy. Um, every, every winemaker is like, Oh, you have to smell it. But, um, almost a hundred percent of Tiridis is always about how it tastes. <laughs> you know, it's all about building that structure because I, I want to show the yeast and I want to show what the wine is going to be like, um, in its truest form after that really expressive, um, sort of, I'd like to say it's like, yeast is like an, is an archeologist. It kind of uncovers things in, in the wine and okay. super, uh, super fascinating to make base wines when there's a lot of, uh, white and red winemakers from Washington around. <laughs> On that yeah, on that note, uh, then uh, it it definitely implies that you guys are making it from the ground up. You're not just like buying shiners and mixing them together. And no oh no, yeah. no, um, we're in like a very unique place right now where we're we're getting to to work alongside others um, in in making wines and growing our sparkling program, and we. Really, we're dedicated to the process this year and making sure that we did the investment in the wine and um, selecting the grapes and progressing our, our knowledge on making good base wines. Yeah, it's, uh, it's far off from a Shiner program, and uh, I can attest to that because uh, I'm riddling all these, all these right, glasses. Right. And gosh, sometimes I wish it was just packed and delivered to us. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I want to I put a note on that. Um, well, first I'm going to circle back and give like a quick synopsis of our name, Tiridus. So Tiridus is made, built up from the three steps that separate sparkling wine from still still wine. Um, so Tirage, Riddle, and Disgorge. Tirage is the T-I-R, Riddle is the R-I-D, and D-I-S is Disgorge. So those are the three steps that are only done in sparkling winemaking that create the sparkle for the traditional method that separate it from still wine. So just to give like a quick synopsis of our name mm-hmm. um, and why that's our name right, right, is right. because we're hundred percent dedicated to creating sparkling wines. And with that dedication, that dedication starts in the vineyard. So contrary to standard winemaking, uh, I'll just use a uh, super premium red wine for an example. 
Um, in the vineyard, you're looking about three tons, three and a half tons per acre of fruit mm -hmm. for a super premium red wine. Um, sparkling wine is way different than that. You, you overcrop. We have about, we're, we're rocking with about eight tons an acre. So over double wow. what super premium red wine is. And, um, we're bringing it in at certain chemistry. That's perfect for Without sparkling. Without giving way too many secrets. Right. We're, we're bringing yeah, we don't, it. We don't need to give all the trade secrets. I'm not, I'm not giving away the trade yeah. secrets, but we're picking a lot of people in the state. What they do is when they're making their wines, they do this process called sanye. When you pull juice off of the original batch and then you have all this juice left over. And this process is done to reduce the, um, the potential alcohol in the main lot. So once you pull out all this juice, you have this left on the side. So a lot of people do random things with this juice. Some people will make sparkling wine. Some people will make rosé. But in order to do that, you have to manipulate the chemistry. So it's not a natural, you know, it's not meant to be what they're making it into because they're adding acid, they're adding water, they're doing all these things. Whereas we start with the... Um, Exactly what we want. Yeah, we're, we're starting. Anything, yeah, so we're starting. Exactly. So we're starting with the product. Yeah, I don't know why I can't say it. <laughs> but <laughs> we have this idea of what we want to produce. And we're starting at the beginning. We aren't we aren't starting with this byproduct and being like, well, what can we do with this? No, yeah. we're starting with the intentions of making sparkling wine in the traditional method. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting point, too, because I, I do feel like when you talk a lot of times when you're talking to winemakers, um, especially with maybe not say they're ultra premium bottles, but they're, you know, maybe the red table wine or something like that is definitely sure. oftentimes feels like this is what we had left over and we figured out a way to make it work and something yeah. we could put in the bottle. Um, so to that point, um, this is another thing that was super different about how Tiridis became a thing. Um, we have a, our retail shop, non-vintage wines, which is just a simple bottle shop. I mean, not simple, of course. There's a lot of cool things in there. We can talk hours and hours about all the cool bottles we're pulling in. But um, the thing about what we saw that is a serious issue in the wine industry, which I'd love to talk about, is the fact that wineries nowadays, particularly in Washington, don't ever make anything for restaurants. Mm -hmm. There's There's no winery out there who um, who prices themselves and supports restaurants by by doing staff trainings by um, you know filling the gaps in their in their lists where there really needs to be good wines locally produced um, and and that's like going back to your point like how you know sometimes winemakers get a little thrown off and they make their red blend for the general and that kind of ends up at the, in in the grocery store and on on the the table at dinner and you know going out. For us, we actually put the most amount of our focus on our on our restaurant-based Blanc de Blanc, which we're drinking right now. And um, you know, this part of this wine goes to restaurants, and it's made at this really high-quality level, this very classic sort of sparkling wine level. Because the first people we wanted to service were the hospitality industry. Mm. We didn't want to um, start right away with a wine club and sort of price out people. We could have, but the, the the intention for us is to gain the industry connection to, you know, having a great bottle at, at restaurants, and that's why we're so avid in trying to seek out new restaurants and help the the front of house and support the industry folks that are feeding the people and and on the ground floor. We find that there's this uh, issue that when you go to a restaurant and you get 
you know, like their house champagne or house bubbles, it's always like some cheaply made, not so good wine. Um, So we kind of wanted to make Tiridis as a, as you know, our our distribution stuff and the stuff that we don't really distribute is all of the same quality. It's all equal quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all like we, we plan it to have like extreme affordability, extreme high quality, and like very unique, very you know. So so I take it that you're not a big fan of the you know forced carbonated Chardonnay type of approach. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you won't you won't catch it in my glass. That's, yeah, not that there's an issue with it. Yeah, it's delicious if you like it. But. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what we run up to is um, a lot of uh, Central Valley, California, forced carbonated, uh, you know, what we call demi sec mm-hmm. style of, of champenoise, and um, you know, I, I often kind of just. I play the classic wine distributor card and I said, okay, I'll pour you a glass of mine and I'll pour you a glass of theirs mm-hmm. and, and we'll sit here and talk about it. And um, I'm happy to leave you with a bottle and you can pour it all night and you'll see that, that ours kind of comes out on top. Yeah. It's kind of simple. I mean, I was, um, I'm not going to name names or anything, but uh, you know, I was talking to a um, bar owner recently and he, he was going on about how he was so excited to, change up switch over to your guys' stuff uh just because it's so much better than what they're using currently which is actually a pretty big reputable wine house so it was surprising but um but it's just because (laughs) like it's it's partially because of the price point it's partially partially the quality um but it's it's really down to your your first point of how your your focus in your winemaking is so much on that supporting the restaurant side supporting the bar side Mm -hmm. um you have the aspects in those bottles that work really well for a you know a bar program where you have that high acid, the high punch, the high carbonation, and that leads perfectly into sort of the crown cap on our bottles. Yeah, <laughs> we, were, we were talking about this before the show, so yeah, let's, can, let's dive in. Yeah, so if can you guys I have go a, right go on something before this, just touching back to us like really approaching restaurants and stuff is our focus. Um, that's an ulterior route to starting and developing a winery. Oh. The conventional route takes a lot of time and a lot of money mm-hmm. and if i'm being honest we are poor and we're impatient so we have to take this ulterior route and so we we really we're our whole goal is to kind of reverse engineer and find this path that's going to make tiridis the most successful and this is what we saw would fit and we're also like i personally have worked in the restaurant and service industry and hospitality so mm-hmm. I understand the struggles of that. I know Matt has too and Gabe. So we all understand we're connected and have like that heart connection to it. So it just makes it it's great. It just works good and we're poor and impatient. And we wanna <laughs> we really wanna do the as much as possible and as yeah, and as well as we can. And as a fact, the entire wine industry is supported almost solely by the restaurant industry. You know, mm-hmm. you yeah, can't have good the wine start industry. restaurants. Yeah. 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 So I just wanted to note that we're poor and impatient. <laughs> poor and impatient. I <laughs> noted. So everybody go out, find, find a bottle of Tiridis, pick it up. Poor and impatient. We need to, we need to get those numbers up. That's our new motto. <laughs> poor and impatient. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt, you know? Yeah. So yeah. as those, uh, those that might be listening that have never seen a bottle of Tiridis, um, we have a really, really simple package. It's a classic, um, champagne styled bottle has a particular name it's called a copa and um and a wrap label and then no um 
adornments or anything on the on the neck or such and it just has a simple um sort of beer bottle cap on top a slightly larger one but that's our our package and there's so much that that kind of uh we thought about and wanted to do with our packaging and then so much of it that we didn't think about that it all perfectly meshed together and i could not have been more happy for that um and uh again just to circle back on the hospitality and the package point is point of reference is that we are one of the few winers that distributes themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we sort of pound the pavement and we do our own deliveries and we don't go through a distributor as of yet, even though we could, we could probably do one. And that's because we wanted to do good restaurant service. We wanted to be reliable. We wanted to be fast. We wanted to talk to people and, um, personal, personable. Yeah. It's not very often where you get, um, the winemaker actually at the restaurant yeah every week uh, dropping off cases. Begging you to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, pounding on the door. And um, anyways, to that point, it sort of saves money for the restaurant as we're cutting out another middleman. Um, And that's sort of what we've done with the packaging too, is that we've been very minimalistic in how we've built out the package. Because we're not trying to to wow you and shock you into buying the bottle by the presentation. We're trying to do that with the wine. Mm. The the value is in the wine. And if I can say though real quick, like. The packaging looks good. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the label. I like the uh, this little kaleidoscope uh, design you've got on all your stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. Cheers to Andy for that. He's, yeah, he's yeah, kind of the head man on the marketing materials. Another uh, really, at least to me, important reason that the crown cap is what we like is um, alongside with like affordability of the wine, um, accessibility is mm-hmm. uh, also very important. A lot of people when they get a bottle of champagne, Prosecco, whatever, they're not really sure of how to get the cork out of the bottle <laughs> safely. You know, you could figure it out, but... I mean, sabering, obviously. Well... Safely, and in a closed environment. Yeah. Sabering is a good way to do I it. Mean, it's, <laughs> I, I think it's the right way. Talking to the king of sabers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Matt sabered it from everything, from a, a, a simple kitchen knife all the way to... I've seen him do it with a chair. <laughs> With so, a chair. Yeah, with a chair, with a folding chair. That's, so that's um, Matthew game. has quite quite the experience of savoring many different wines. Mm. Um, anyway, so <laughs> it, it creates like a, a, a most an easier peace of mind with you when, when you're ready to have the bubbles. You don't have to figure out how to shoot the cork off the top mm-hmm. if you don't know what you're doing. It's easy enough to just, you know, with yeah. a bottle opener. Um, mm-hmm. So both for restaurant staff who need to quick crack it open to pour it into whatever. Um, and also if you're at home with your family and you don't have to have a big scene trying to open your wine. There are other quality implications to that too. Like Andrew can speak to why some of that, that we've changed too. Yeah. So, um, cork is not good for wine. <laughs> <laughs> like there cork is outdated to be honest. Um, crown caps offer great precision and then also quality protection. Cork has natural compounds in it that can spoil the wine. Whereas Mm -hmm. crown caps, they have no compounds in it that's going to spoil the wine. And you can get very specific porosities in it, too, to let Mm -hmm. in a certain amount of oxygen just to oxidize and help age the wine. So it's very, very precise. Going back to the precision aspect of Mm -hmm. sparkling wine, it's something that we're passionate about. So the the precision in um, quality assurance is super important to us. And you don't have to worry about cork. And then another part about it is... um, environmental implications because mm-hmm. we don't have as much packaging as most mm-hmm. there's no foil there's no glue there's no wire there's no cork there's no cross-continental yeah. shipping involved with those <laughs> materials from other places and so sure. crown caps are just very simple they're precise 
they ensure the quality of our product Mm -hmm. keeps people from blowing their heads off with a cork or blowing someone else's head off and Mm -hmm. 12 people per year die from champagne corks is that a fact that's i read that on instagram so maybe not that's how you know it's real Yeah. yeah yeah um just as like a super summation of that um a cork that would last 10 years mm-hmm. for a champagne bottle is around a dollar 50 quirk. Yeah. So, um, you know, that adds a dollar 50. So that changes our, that changes your glass pour at a restaurant from $11 a glass up to about $14 a glass. Sure. So that same cap will last 25 years hmm. and it's not even over 10 cents. So what you're telling me is that's why Dom's really expensive. It's all the cork. That's, that's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. But it's a it's a big part of, of of sort of our distribution hospitality is is explaining that package to people. And I have gotten nothing but great reviews on how it's been working out for people. Yeah. Never had someone to tell me that they had it blown up in their face. Yeah, that's, that's good. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, no, that's a good point though. Like, I can't count the number of family gatherings I've had where I have to like wrestle the champagne bottle out of my mom's hands. I'm like, no, 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 you're gonna kill somebody. Like, yeah. the, open it properly. Um, I am curious too. We've talked a lot about you know Tiridis, Um and I, I do want to come back, but before we get too far, um, I want to talk about non-vintage a little bit because uh, you know you guys do have two sides of your business here. You, you kind of briefly mentioned at the beginning how it, how it got started but what's kind of um i guess what what obviously starting the wine label was your passion out of school um or at least that's what it sounds like what what was the uh the thought process behind doing a wine um wine shop at the same time i think we all got into it for different reasons to be honest okay <laughs> yeah which which happened again uh we didn't plan it but it worked really well um, I can speak to it from my, first of all, let, let me just mention that the formation of not vintage wines happened over very, very numerous angry teams calls. Um, uh, we, we had t- at teams calls and coffee shop runs. It was, it was like a once a week sort of, uh, gathering and, um, eh, maybe three, three yeah. times a week, probably at twice. Least, yeah. Out of those three times we never actually talked about it. We just yeah. drank coffee all day. We, but, we spent most of our time at a coffee shop yeah. during, during uh, college. Playing chess. Yeah, playing chess. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I mean, playing chess. Uh, sounds like chess. my college experience. I, I, I got the nickname Cappuccino Kid. <laughs> okay. And Dopio Dutney. Um, I feel like the three of us spent uh, um, the two and a half years we knew each other at college kind of joking about starting a winery or starting a wine shop. Um, joking at a coffee shop over some coffees. And then when we were graduating, it was kind of during the height of the pandemic. So we couldn't really travel. We couldn't find anywhere new to work. So uh, starting our own business was like the most forward, progressive thing we could do with our lives. Um, and we, I, we, me, found that you were here in the heart of Washington, uh, wine country, you know. Your Red Mountain's 15 minutes away from our shop. Mm-hmm. And you can't really find very high quality, very exciting international wines almost anywhere. Like you go to a grocery store, you can find great Washington wines, you can find some international stuff. And I mean, that's understandable, but that's kind of a, an issue that right. needed to be dealt with. So we dealt with it. Definitely <laughs> dealt with it. want to be the change we needed, you know? Um, so we want to build a wine shop that was what, what we thought we would find cool if we walked into and where we were hoping everyone else would enjoy and uh, kind of as a vehicle to expand people from Washington to other parts of the world. You know, like if they really enjoy 
uh, some Red Mountain Cabernet Merlot blend, we could say, yeah, that's delicious. But here's what it's based off of. This is from Bordeaux. This is a mm-hmm. classic Bordeaux blend. Um, and we want to not only bring new wines to the area, but also kind of educate and further the Washington wine industry ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I really appreciate about your guys' shop is, um, you know, when you go in, you're every week you're doing a different curated tasting that's um, highlighting a different portion of the world or, a, you know, a class of wine or something like that. Um, you know, you do it around a theme and you're really good about educating alongside of that. So say, you know, it's a, a Rhone tasting or something like that. You're going to have at least the few times I've been in, it's usually like more obscure subregions, which is kind of fun, you know, not going in and having the, the Chateauneuf de Pop or something like that. Specifically like, no Chateauneuf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's fun. It's like you said, it's stuff you don't see every day. You don't get to try all the time. Um, and it's really good. Like I was surprised. I wouldn't go into a grocery store and buy those wines. Sometimes so. we surprise ourselves. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Constantly. I didn't know anything about Southern Rhone until I had to do a tasting for it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair. Yeah. No, but I think education is something that we really uh, make a point of at our shop because I mean, through our experience in the industry, there's a major disconnect between consumers and producers. And we just want to increase the transparency in that. And having the consumers realize that there's a whole other world of wine other than Washington is super important because you can only understand like yourself without understanding your history. Like you have to know the history of wine Mm -hmm. to really understand where we're at and how far we've come and where our products actually lie. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like... I mean, it's probably that that way in most, especially smaller uh, wine producing regions like, you know, Columbia Valley or um, Willamette Valley in Oregon or things like that. Like everyone who lives there is going to say this is the best wine in the world. This is the only good wine ever made anywhere. Um, I feel like Washington is a little bit more just like stupid about that because we produce so many different varietals here and yeah. so like oh it's better than you know this Malbec is better than any you're going to find in Argentina or you know this this cab is better than any in France or something yeah. like that yeah. um, it's just yeah a, a lot of people I've talked to at wineries and stuff like that and granted my experience isn't huge but oftentimes you'll hear that sentiment it's like I would, you know I'll never drink old world stuff Washington's yeah. the best like, people come into the shop constantly and say I won't drink anything but Washington we have the best wine in the world and, and all they want is Washington and have to fight with them until they mm-hmm. take home, you know, a Rhone or a Bordeaux. I think that we're in a particularly interesting space right now because we support international producers avidly, but we also are a local one as well. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing to this is that um, we want to, first of all, before I actually even went to WSU, I was doing some research on Washington wines and 86% of Washington wines are consumed in Washington which is staggering. That's, that's. Yeah. yeah, So, I mean, even people in, you know, let's say uh, Massachusetts don't really know much about Washington wines. So Mm -hmm. the intent to do uh, international sort of winemaking in Washington is very, is years, is years ahead of us. And um, we're not there yet. Um, There's not really that typical Washington wine set, set as a head. Um, But as a producer living on that double-edged sword, we also really tried to incorporate how we would approach the Washington wine industry when we're when we support avidly international producers as well, and that's why we um, we never claim to be a champagne house. We never, you know, we support the Washington people as they are growing and experiencing and expanding into the global market. But it mm-hmm. is important for us as we got an education. We each paid a lot for our education <laughs> at, at Washington universities to actually be able to 
go and analyze wines of international quality and compare them to what our expectations would be here in the Consumers for Washington done in that international style. And it's incredibly invaluable, the, the level at which tasting those wines and interpreting those wines can yield you amazing results in Washington. So kudos to those people out there that are doing it very well. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, to that point, you had you mentioned at the beginning that um, on this new release, you're really trying to focus on being a local Washington yeah. producer. Correct. <laughs> can yes. you dive into that a little more? Well, I, I can do so much about it. Um, honestly, <laughs> it's it's too, it's too easy to talk about it. Um, we we don't want to be a, a champagne house or a, a champagne esque wine, even though we're following that method. Um, that's just because we think that method's the best way to make a sparkling wine. We want to be a, a, a very sturdy Washington sparkling wine brand. You know, we want to support uh, the grapes that grow well here. We want to use the grapes. We want to buy, you know, from the areas it works well um, and kind of create a, a face for Washington sparkling wine and not, a, not alone, but help support others who are doing it as well. We don't want to be uh, someone in Washington who's making this champagne. You know, we want to mm -hmm. be someone in Washington making Washington sparkling. Sure. The world is saturated with champagne wannabes Massive. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. it's it's saturated but, but it's a, what it's not saturated with is washington sparkling producers not yet i'm sure people can name one besides tiridus um other than which that we won't name which we won't name, <laughs> we won't name. because well quite frankly um but no <laughs> there's, there's <laughs> no the the one not to be named has done a lot for our industry Definitely. which it can't be said enough but um we like there's no point in us trying to be a champagne house we're competing with thousands and thousands of producers around the world for that who have hundreds of years who of have hundreds of years of right. experience, um, in experience front of us, yeah. and establishing a customer base and marketing and all that but there's nobody really in washington so. but i mean to the other side of that is it, it's kind of inevitable that you're going to be compared to oh, a, a champagne or we, something uh, like that. we fully anticipate the comparison yeah. and we are very much ready for it we yeah. have uh we're kind of always at least myself i always have my head on a swivel for those type of comparisons and we snuff them out very quickly <laughs> um although we, we we follow traditional methods there are several ways that we've actually manipulated not only our winemaking processes but also how we speak about the wine what we intend to engage with our customers about our wine mm -hmm. that are uniquely different than champagne my classic if you may, my classic <laughs> little um, sort of restaurant pitch is that I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and tell you that I'm a champagne house. I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to make you Pinot Noir. I'm not going to plant anything special for your sparkling program. I'm going to make you sparkling wine from Washington. There's no chance that you're going to see me try to compare us to anything close to that of champagne. Mm -hmm. And I would be a bald-faced liar if I could say that Washington's going to compare to that unique terroir. It's a respect perfectly designed for sparkling wine. Yes, you know? right. and it's, it's literally the, the foundation of champagne. The history of champagne has made the process, has formulated the process. Here in Washington, we are still finding our places, and the way that we are now moving forward with our wines, um, I really believe will eventually terminate in us creating a style that can be proposed as a Washington-style sparkling wine. That's our goal. Another note to that, um, to separating us from champagne is we're stylistically different, or at least most of our wines we plan to have stylistically different than champagne. 
in Champagne, you need to have a minimum age requirement of three years on on mm-hmm. lees uh, to produce yeah. intourage, yeah, okay. to to be able to release your product under the Champagne label. Uh, we only have a few months on ours. We want a very mm-hmm. light, very fresh, very drink now style of yeah. uh, sparkling wine. Not to say we'll never put some down for a few years, just because that's a delicious way to have but a wine. But the thing that we want to charge for is not the longevity of the Mm -hmm. bottle and how long we've held it. I think that that's a misnomer when it comes to making premium sparkling wine is because it's all about the base. It's about Mm -hmm. the quality. It's not about the timeline. And um, we do some some particular processes on our juice and in our wine that yield us in wines that have this high acidity classic of a sparkling wine. And it is just at the tipping scale where it's Washington, where it's, it shows you that a little bit more pithiness, a little bit more of that sun exposure, a little bit more of that verve that you get from a Washington climate, um, and balancing that with acidity. So we're, we're often on the side of less dosage, but we're manipulating a little bit more of these other processes that make the wines uniquely Washington in my uh, spec. And most of all, I mean, that's very from the basis is also the grapes that we use. Mm-hmm. Which is a great time to crack out the yeah, second which one. Yeah, which is an absolutely yeah, great we, time. When we open her up. And, and I'll note that these uh, manipulations are of natural. Extremely natural, <laughs> yeah. Natural. We're not yeah. We're not talking about throwing in a bunch of acid and like all these chemicals that a lot of produce. So I just want to preface, we don't use very invasive chemicals during sure. the winemaking process. It's other natural manipulations that we do. Right. So I assume that it's more of just choosing the, the time of harvest and like um, without, the, the blend of grapes you're putting in the crush and without, stuff like that. Without sharing a lot of our secrets yeah. because yeah, we yeah, have yeah. very Fair specific enough. practices yeah. that okay. we've yeah, we, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like the nudnik of the group. So I have, uh, I have like a, a large protocol list and I sort of uh, force them to read it. And um, <laughs> Money Winemakers kind of um, bolster around and like, yeah, you know, we'll do this today. Uh, no, it's kind of like, oh, in day 36, we're going to be doing this to exactly. this sort of thing. And uh, it, it's, it's terrible to work with me, but you know, at the end of it, you end up, you end up with a, a pretty good uh, something or other. Thankfully, Andrew's pretty similar in that way, where uh, very science-minded, very mechanical, uh, and the two of them work through these insane calculations of wine blends that I'll never understand, even with my degree. Um, not to WSU's fault, to my own. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, so while, while we're pouring the wine, that actually brings up an, an interesting point that I, I didn't touch on in the beginning. I know Andrew, at least, is m- making wine not for just... Here it is. Are, are all of you guys doing winemaking on the side as well? I got stuck at Envy okay. while they went to have fun. S- stuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really make wine per se, but I, I help in um, sort of managing clients who make okay. wine and uh, on, on the customer service side of, of the wine industry. Okay. Very cool. And so we just popped uh, another one of our bottles. This one is going to be most indicative of us as producers and Washington as a producing region itself. Um, We just popped our Blanc degree, which is um, 75% Pinot Grigio and 25% Chardonnay. Um, Generally, when you're producing champagne, you're producing from six to eight atmospheres and pressure. Um, This one, we're going in more of a Prosecco style. And what that just means is it's going to be a lighter pressure in the bottle. So the Bubbles aren't going to be as vigorous. It's going to be a little bit more palatable. It's not going to be as aggressive. Um, 
And we chose to go with that lighter carbonation level for this wine because we really feel like it has it creates this like synergy with Pinot Grigio, and which is the base of this wine pretty much. And um, we Pinot Grigio is known for its waxy finish, and we believe that that the lighter bubbles really lets the waxy finish come through and show itself. Mm-hmm. And Pinot Grigio grows great as a sparkling base mm-hmm. in Washington, so. Oh, I mean, no, it horribly. Yeah. <laughs> it does terrible. The uh, the lighter bubble also, Pinot Gris, Pinot Grigio uh, has this wonderful floral note that I always get from every bottle I've had, and uh, we found that like the higher carbonation, uh, kind of lessens, kind of uh, dims away, mutes that very beautiful and yeah. small uh, floral note that goes in there. What's super unusual about our Blanc degree that um, is hard to kind of explain is that although it's like um, we explain it as like a lower carbonation, something similar to uh, Prosecco. It's a little bit higher than that, but it's similar in Prosecco in that it's the same carbonation level. However, the process is still the traditional method. Yeah. So you get this really, really unique bottle encapsulated with lower pressure, but because we're fermenting less, we actually have less yeast in the bottle as well. So a faster riddling time. It also means that it's less of that yeasty character. It's more of a brighter Washington character. Mm-hmm. And this wine is one of the, the wines that, for me anyways, especially in our tiers lineup, develops the most as it warms up. Um, it kind of goes from like, uh, like a, a rich, super saturated, wilted white flower to really, really like a nice sort of orange blossom mm-hmm. and citrus pith. And that's, that's something that's hard to do in wine is to get it to evolve in the yeah. glass. And that's exciting for us. Or at least ev- evolve in a way that's pleasing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's important. I, a lot of wines, at least, actually quite a few on the sparkling side that I've had recently with the holiday season and such. Um, you know, they start out really great, <clears throat> good acid on them and stuff. And you're like, this is, this is enjoyable. And then it's been sitting in your glass for a little while. You're talking, take a sip and you're like, Oh, there's the sulfur. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that really goes back to our process and how, Again, like Andrew and Matt were saying, is that a lot of Washington wineries have a very, very long and rigorous red and white wine program. Mm -hmm. I mean, mostly red, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't really focus in and narrow in on the quality of sparkly wines. And that's all we do. That's everything that we focus on. Yeah. That's, I mean, it does make you unique, but I mean, I think it's cool. I personally, (laughs) I like it when a winery really focuses on on what they do well. Yeah. Yeah. It can be overwhelming. Like you'll walk into a winery and they have a list of 25 to 30 different wines that they produce, all different varietals, blends of, say, varietals. Yeah. And you're, you're just like, oh, I like them, but mm-hmm. I don't know which one I liked and why and what right. I'm really doing. It can be overwhelming. And that's something that we really wanted to focus on is um, specifically sparkling, but then also kind of keeping a certain number of skews that's not overwhelming Mm -hmm. and also keeping all those skews very distinct from each other a skew is each individual Um, like label or bottle label had to explain that for me i didn't know what it was before (laughs) fair enough um so in this new because you guys are uh just having your at the time of recording anyway you're gonna be releasing your um your newest 
I guess I can't say vintage, non-vintage, but new release, your yeah. newest release. Um, Our newest the scorching. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> this score. Yeah. It sounds terrible when you say it that way. It, it really does. I think it's uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of discorching. Tell yeah, you what. Love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's it's a it's basically um as you say most people go by vintage for winery but mm-hmm. really for us as we make wines it's all by tirage so it's like oh this is our new tirage it's okay. our new tirage bottling it's our new upcoming stuff sure and um, you know that's really fun about sparkling is that we make new wines all the time yeah. across mm-hmm. the year and we're, you know we're not stuck to just a harvest and it's super how many times a year are you guys releasing then we don't have a set number but uh, okay. if we see something that's beautiful mm-hmm. You, you pump it out and absolutely right. sure that it's going to be in our bottle. Yeah, yeah. that's we'll cool. A release party, yeah. a lot of wine, <laughs> a lot of smiles. Yeah, we yeah that's we love the time. release party because you know, you need, at a release party you need a sparkling wine. Boom, we already have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, what I was what I was getting to though is um, what what are you doing in your different releases uh, to make them that kind of like unique skew? Um, and differentiate obviously different varietals probably um so there's there's different blends you can make of the wines that make them all unique um which is the kind of the more obvious thing uh but there's also different uh time it's spent on the lees time it's spent aging with tirage um that will make each wine unique uh there's also we can manipulate it manipulate there's that word again we can <laughs> change the wine in different ways to have like different pressure or if we didn't think it was, the first blend was right we can go back and change that blend through our base wines um, sure so there's a lot of like smaller things we could do such as different age amount mm-hmm. on the wines that if we were to release this one at three months and then another three months and then another three months you'll notice massive exponential differences between those three wines and if mm-hmm. we wanted we could have three different labels to show that it's massively different between those three. When you say age, is that age in the bottle or is that aging on the lees? Like what's well, the- both. That's, that's the really cool thing yeah. about playing with non-vintage wines. A lot of people, when you're producing a still wine, like red producers, going back to it, um, you're blending from one vintage and there's just one aging process. It all starts on one date, but in the sparkling winemaking process, we're, there's three different times for aging. So you mm-hmm. can age the base wine, you can age in tirage, and then you can age after disgorgement. So we can manipulate all those factors and blend from different vintages too to get this really, really unique product to fit our image and our desired um, product pretty much. So it's just you have so many more blending components and you can, it's, it's, it's just going back to it. There's yeah. so much you can manipulate and it's such a specific process that it's just kind of fun but also tantalizing and slightly unnerving and challenging and intimidating but there's just so much that you can change in the process to get the product that you want so yeah i love it man i love the product and yeah it's i think you guys are doing really good things with this um what's kind of the the future for you look like or what's the what's the trying to start an argument (laughs) oh geez i'm sorry no no um, the future for for non vintage or for tiertis? Uh, uh, are so they different? About tiertis, so let's let's start there. Um, gosh, so right now tiertis is looking for its own private winery space, mm-hmm. um, and it, not actually even searching. We're hunting for a space, um, and we're we're getting ready for that as we want to sort of consolidate our processes. We want to provide a tasting room that's unique for tiertis. Um, and we're 
we're almost we're almost there i think probably and by the the new year uh, 2022 we will be in our space and we'll be super fortunate for those around us and it's just going to be a perfect little nexus for sparkling wine so that's not, I mean, that's in a couple of weeks. So that, that sounds like it's more than just hunting. You've oh, got that's a hunt. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, light industrial space is, is very hard to find. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now we're, we're definitely probably going to be in Prosser, Washington. Okay. In, in just the tail end of the valley. And, uh, you know, the people of Prosser are very supportive and we're working with a great bunch of people over there and mm-hmm. they're going to kind of help, uh, curtail our production and transfer it into our new space and uh, many more tiered release parties from then on until we get so big that we need another facility built now while not while still not mentioning names uh that is going to put you pretty close to another sparkling wine uh, house we are very happy to, yeah. okay. to discuss and uh you know collaborate and talk the, the, the best thing about washington wine industry mm-hmm. is that it's still young and we still collaborate yeah. and um nothing against them we, we make honestly very different wines yeah and yeah. um i'm very happy to lament that uh the other such name is is happy to be on the list next to ours we make different stylized wines as I would be happy to see many different types of champagne on my wine shop shelf. It's, sure. it's no different to me. I'm actually happier that there isn't, that it's not just us. And I've yeah. got some solo adventure into this world of unbeknownst Washington sparkling wine. It's good that there's, yeah, it takes weight off. Uh, we're yeah. not the pioneers. And I would like to think that they feel the same way versus like, it's expanding the space. It's more people doing things more different, um, yeah. like differently. It, it's good for the industry all all around, both to have competition and to have, like you said, potential collaboration yeah. or just expanding the um, exposure. Yes, really, the uh, knowledge to, of sparkling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we have a lot to learn, and we're not going to sure. claim anything more than what we have already done. And they have a winery and we're starting ours. I love it's, it. It's very simple. I'm excited for the new space though. That's, that's be really cool. Yeah. We're super pumped. Um, we, we had been looking now for a few months and, um, I mean, no promises on how beautiful it's going to be right away, but happy to have you over. Um, Hey man, you <laughs> look around right now. Like we were in a half finished bar. Like, <laughs> yeah, that is so nice. Yeah, it's beautiful it's actually. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. No, I appreciate it. Um, so that's kind of our future in six to nine months as we keep growing and hopefully our restaurants keep supporting us and we'll keep supporting them. And then the people that, you know, the kind people in Prosser and throughout the Valley and travelers from Seattle will patron our, our little drinking well, and it'll be <laughs> very, very fun for all of us. I think, I think it's going to do wonderful. You know, if you, if you keep pumping out products like this, especially, I mean, very reasonable price point. Um, yeah. I think we like to think, think so. Yeah, I mean, we hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the for the quality of product, I think it's very reasonable. Thank you. Thank um, you. We try to we try to work on that. Yeah. Daily. It's it's our it's <laughs> it's a thing for sure. I, it's got to be right, and especially. I mean, this year being what it was, nothing's cheap anymore. Um, and so, being able to to put out a consistent product um, at the you know, you're pretty much always under the thirty dollar mark still, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean that's that's crazy. Except for you know special release. Yeah, the I think oh, sure. uh, as a yeah yeah another note to the future. I think as a brand, we plan on releasing wines similar to this style wise, price wise, quality wise. But I, at one point, we had said that we're thinking about doing the occasional one off 
where we do something cool and exciting, have a very small lot of it. Yeah. And that might be a little more expensive. But that, uh, that it goes to, uh, you have to join the wine club. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah we, that was something I was going to yeah. ask next, actually. But. Yeah, so, um, I mean, experimentation is super important for industry development and mm -hmm. progression. And so it's something that, I mean, we went to school at a very scientific-driven yeah. university at WSU. Um, so yeah, we want to experiment. It's fun. Mm -hmm. You know, you can make some really great things, but you can also make some really shitty things too. But um, we hope to not make the latter. But <laughs> you know, sometimes it happens. But I mean, we were currently yet. in... <laughs> you don't have to know about those yeah. ones. <laughs> they didn't um, make release anyway. <laughs> did you hear about that new champagne vinegar brand coming out? Of yeah. That? yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but... So we're, we're actually currently working on creating a wine club and that's gonna be one of the draws to the wine club is access to mm -hmm. these specialty one-off bottlings. And stuff like is it gonna be a, um, a Tiridus wine club or like a non-vintage wine club? A Tiridus wine club okay. specifically. Um, not to say that a non-vintage wine club isn't out of the picture, mm -hmm. but just two separate things. As a consumer in 20, 2020, 2021, I know I've personally gotten a lot of wine club fatigue because uh, I'm you know I'm like most you know millennial Americans I feel like that are into wine you join one or two wine clubs because it's all your seller can support and then your seller is full of three winemakers and that's about it this is um, a, the exact complaint that I uh, kick and scream about all the time when it right. comes to wine clubs and that's kind of why uh, maybe I shouldn't mention this I'm not part of any wine clubs um, I, I, I want I want a cellar where I can pull out different people's wine. I want to be able to show different people's wine, and yeah. my whole budget can't be to one to one. I want to support people. If I had all the money in the world, I would just have a mountain of glass in my basement. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately <laughs> enough, I have to be very choosy, and that's kind yeah. of the beauty of the bottle shop that we started. Is that yeah. I can kind of be choosy, and I can pick and choose and whatever. Mm -hmm. I get two bottles. Okay, maybe I'm paying you know a little bit, like a dollar more per bottle or something. But sure. my God. I don't have to end up with these cases and cases yeah. of wine. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, the clubs, I mean, I'm great. I've, I've quit all the ones that are like, we're going to give you 24 bottles a year and stuff. It's like this. It's insane. One, trying to store all that. And two, just wine on that volume's a whole different conversation. Um, but yeah, for me, um, like, uh, I've talked to you guys about uh, Mark Newman, his shop before. Um, I, I love his wine club program just because of the variety that it gives you. Um, and so I was curious if non-vintage was doing something similar because it's I really like the concept of having that kind of curated, potentially international box to both spread that um, kind of exposure to wines you maybe haven't tried and, you know. Yeah, so non-vintage, we definitely plan on doing it. There's it's just we're kind of focused on getting the tier list, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 the space up and running. But we do want to do something in a wine club situation, and then also kind of tie it into our curated tastings. So wine club members not only get their bottles of wine, but when they pick them up, they can taste those bottles of wine, so they know exactly what they have mm. in those bottles. So when they take them home, they aren't like, oh, is this the right bottle for the right occasion? You know, yeah. just increasing the or. The increase in the assurance for the consumer sure but um we've got a lot of sorry oh, then i was going to just tie it back to tiredus um we're planning on trying something a new a new style of wine club 
which is not really seen, but it's a subscription based where upon signing up, you can choose the number of bottles and the frequency. So mm-hmm. it's very much um, structured around you as the consumer. And there's a lot more flexibility rather than committing to 48 bottles a year. Yeah. Like most wine clubs or 24 bottles a year. So this one you can choose like blah, blah, blah. So, but the right. thing, the thing with the wine club, my issue is it's like, I have prepaid <laughs> for 48 bottles a year. I may want to buy 48 bottles a year, but I may not want those 48 you bottles. Want a, you want a sampler. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. So Envy will take care of that. Yeah, but then here it is, we'll also try to avoid that stress on your end. Right, mm-hmm. right. So Yeah, and that always kind of comes back to the one we started, Chiritas, is that we didn't want to be that that drain on your checking account. <laughs> and uh, Like I said, poor and impatient. Yeah. Poor and impatient. So, yeah. so like, you know, we're, we're a winery that's not destitute if you quit our wine club. We're, we're mm-hmm. going to persist on in our hospitality and right. you know uh we, we want people to we think it's foolish that you're only going to be able to enjoy our wine in one setting because some of the best food that you're going to have is made by the best chefs in eastern washington that sure. we want our wines paired with their food mm-hmm. um not to say that you're not a good cook but i'm just saying like we want our wines next to real connoisseurs and gastronomy and that's how we build an actual style of wine in the Washington areas, because it always has to be grown up around food. We we talk a lot about the three of us. Um, we never use it in branding or anything like that, but we use the word hedonistic a lot. Uh, we find ourselves to be hedonists, um, which is which is someone who does things for the purpose of enjoyment uh, of pleasure. Um, so that's kind of where, at least for me, I think uh, wine is wine should be in most in everyone's lives is just a. It's, it's a point of enjoyment. You know, you're having that dinner, have that wine to enjoy as well. You don't need to study every aspect of this wine. You know, you can if you want to be that sommelier or that guy who can do know everything about the wine. But wine at its core, at its base, is just a beverage designed for enjoyment. Um, so that's kind of something we want to curate to. If you're in our wine club, we want to make sure you're enjoying our wine club, you know. It's more about you liking our brand, liking our wine, uh, and liking having a smile on your face every time that box comes to your door, you know. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And we don't want to be too expensive. One of the worst things is popping an expensive bottle and realizing it sucks. Yeah, or being like, too hesitant or to being open that too bottle. hesitant yeah. to where it goes bad. So we want to be at the price point where it's like, oh yeah, it's a nice bottle, but it's also mm-hmm. not going to break the bank. You yeah. know, it, it wine is like Matt was saying; it's supposed to be enjoyed, but it's also supposed to complement. Wine is only as, I mean, it creates synergy with things, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. with people with foods with events with music art everything it's very complimentary and creates a synergy so we want it to be more about more than just the wine yeah. we want it to be a, a sum of a multiple things a collection of multiple things exactly sure and also not to say we are never going to make a 70 dollar bottle but that <laughs> 70 dollar bottle will probably not be under tiridus because yeah. tiridus mm-hmm. is just meant for sure affordability yeah we we often kind of get into a conversation we're like well um i don't really have a price for that yet and i'm like it should be about this and they're like really that cheap i'm like (laughs) i'm like well i don't want to we don't we're not going to price gouge anybody i mean you know uh like matthew works the shop but you know our our free time is spent on on tiritis so we're not really getting anything out of it for our personal self it's all about just building something together and that's why we're like no let's let's try to offer it to people as best as we can Mm -hmm. and and that's that's what we do. Yeah, exactly. 
I love it, man. Mm-hmm. Another uh, story, I guess, is what I wanted to, I wanted to mention before yeah, when we were all talking please. about the businesses, is that, yeah, when we, when we get into any sort of project, the three of us, um, whether it's regarding maximum wine quality, whether it's regarding the precision of, of how we want Tiridus to be branded, the complexity of a wine club, uh, you know, inter, uh, you know, company and, and public and private uh, conversations and all that type of stuff, we always end up kind of having the same story go on, which is uh, we're gonna keep going until someone says no. And <laughs> not a single person yeah. has ever been like, you know what, it's not possible, guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To our dismay. Except the bank. <laughs> except, except for the first time, yeah. We, when we were first starting, we would you know talk to our families, talk to friends, Talk to people we went and talked to, talk to banks, whoever. Everyone's like, this is a this is such a cool idea. And we were like, yeah, we're that, for it. that no to give us the motivation. Yeah. Even now, even that one, you know, even like in a financing issue, whatever. But the the thing is is that everyone says, Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna you go ahead, do it. I don't and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we gotta make it possible is the issue. <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, at every turn I'm like, okay, so you know, it's the start of the month, this month it's dead. You know, we're not. It's not. It's not going anymore. We're gonna get a little bit of time to relax, and then, uh, you know, it's it's the third of the month, and I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> I gotta go to Spokane. I gotta go yeah, talk to yeah. these people. I so. get a call from Gabe. You sold any wine today? And it came at six a.m. <laughs> like, oh, like, right, I gotta I gotta go sell some wine or something. So yeah, it, it you know, and we we consistently have that issue, and it's a great issue to have when you're young, and, and it's all fun, mm-hmm. and we're super excited about it that no one has told us no yet. And I don't think it's going to happen for a while. It's a little dangerous, but it is. Very, it is. Uh, we're all young, and it's totally dangerous. It's a. It's a terrible thing to have happen, but um, <laughs> everybody seems to like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's good. It's ambition. It's hustle, and and you know you guys are making good on it so far. So that's what I like you. to think. <laughs> I like. I like. Uh, you know. I hope that it keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We hope so too. We we got some wine that we're gonna tirage bottle in January, so it's definitely gonna keep going. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I uh, I'm gonna wrap back to something I meant to ask earlier, and then we went off on a tangent. But um, the <laughs> getting back into um, like the actual wine making process, and and when you're going through harvest and buying grapes and stuff, um, do you have like specific varietals you're looking for uh, in general, or is it just kind of like, you know, this is looks really promising this year, so we're gonna try something different. So, I you know I think that people winemakers yeah whatever kind of have a, a very very skewed perception of what it takes to be a winemaker <laughs> uh and i also you know it's 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 challenging because i think when you're trained as um a winemaker in the washington environment is that you say okay so i have these grapes from this vineyard i'm making this wine mm-hmm. and then that wine goes into this bottle very simple right but the thing about sparkling wine is it's not that way you you're kind of playing with wine chemistry so much and you're trying not to manipulate anything by additives and that type of stuff Mm -hmm. you're really building five wines like for for us examples five wines we're building five wines but we have 60 wines that we're making during harvest and each one of them has a specific not, not even it's not for itself by itself it's nothing Right. It has absolutely no value. It's it's all about what we're trying to get to in the end. They're blending components. Yeah. So like one of our biggest wines that comes in during harvest is, is our Chardonnay. And that Chardonnay provides our high acidity. It provides sort of that 
crisp backbone and um, sort of verve that goes through and it kind of adds a citrus note. And sometimes like this last 20, 2021 year, it provides really nice pear, like a crisp white pear. And um, we love it. And that's like one of our biggest batches. And that's because it's it's sort of in a lot of our stuff and it's a signature mm-hmm. to it. Um, but there are other wines that we take during harvest that people are like, what are you guys taking that for? And I'm like, no, no, it's a, it's a legitimate project that we're <laughs> that we're trying to do. And yeah. and then you know now now that we have our wine stabilized and and a little bit clearer, they're like, oh, now I see why you're doing that bizarre stuff during harvest. I'm like, yeah, this but is all part of it. We yeah. can, we can't yeah. tell you, this but it's secret. But it's 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 it secret. goes into that new Washington yeah, process. Yeah, it's new Washington process, and you know that's kind of the funnest thing about sparkling is that I you know I never have to we never have to sit there and say. Okay, guys, we got a bootstrap and pick it up. It's this is this is the wine for that bottle, mm-hmm. and this year it's just not going to make it. You know, every year we're going to say, okay, we have this collection. We got we we have all the components. We know what it took last year, and that's how we can make our wines that consistency, that quality, mm-hmm. and it's kind of the most fun thing is to make these bizarre one-off, you know, components to our winemaking, yeah. which is just so much fun. Is that how that um, that barrel finished one came about? Oh yeah. Oh man, I think Matthew should share the story uh, of the barrel. (laughs) I was uh, for okay. First of all, I really enjoyed that that wine a lot. It was it was fantastic. Um, But I was I've since trying that. I've been really curious how you make a sparkling wine a barrel finish. Do you barrel finish the the whatever started the the still wine or the that barrel so we have a it's good to say before we start none of us are really into barrel aged chardonnays you know oh we'll get into the story that's a it's that's a california thing they can yeah yeah well well so tiritus we're all happy and (laughs) we're happy with where it was now but in the beginning like andrew said the important part about winemaking especially coming at it from the academic side is that we do trials and we were like, okay, let's bootstrap some money to do some trials. And we made some cases in these very, very different styles of wine. <laughs> and we made uh, six, seven, eight, eight of different styles of wine. And um, one of them, as sort of a joke, <laughs> not a joke, but like a less, less optimistic style of wine, yeah. was sort of a program of barrel fermented sparkling base wine. So it's fermented in barrel. Yeah, maybe. So, so the juice, it <laughs> possibly. Yeah, it's not much of a trade secret, but we 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 take our you know our juice after pressing. We do a very gentle champagne style pressing, mm-hmm. styled, and um, it means you just like step on it with big gross feet, right? No, absolutely small. not. Small, uh, we, small, small feet, <laughs> delicate. Feet. Uh, it, basically, we just we're just controlling the pressures in um, the press to make sure that, you know, we extract, you know, the purest type of juice instead of getting some bitterness or, or a lot of pulp, for example, <laughs> it's another story, but anyways, um, <laughs> another story, <laughs> it involves blended learning and Andy having to clean out a press. Um, so anyways, we, uh, we fermented some base wine and some barrels. I thought it'd be a pretty cool idea. You know, traditionally you, you, this is a way back where very old technique of, of making good red wine is that you would take a like a lower quality Chardonnay or white wine and ferment it in the barrel to season the barrel before you barrel down your more expensive wine in those new barrels later in the year. Because the juice of a, of a white wine will actually sort of precipitate out some of those heavy characteristics 
tannins and such inside of a new barrel. So um, we got some guys who wanted to have that premium process for the red wines. And I was like, I'll, I'll chip in some wine and get some barrel flavor in our wines <laughs> to, to do this. And uh, that's exactly what we did. And we fermented it in, um, as part of that project, it was also 100% um, some, some cool, like organic stuff we were doing with that lot. And uh, yeah, and it took on that barrel flavor and we bottled it because we were like, we're going to make an opulent barrel style champagne. Sure. People loved it. It was great. I loved it. I loved yeah, it. Too, it yeah. was, it was unique for sure. And not in a bad way. It's not like a lot of people always say, Oh, wine was really, no, it was like legitimately different and really good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the funny thing is, is that so many people are mentioning it now. It's kind of become its own little monster. Yeah. Of like, Where's it's, the barrel? I, I, I yeah. just accidentally opened my last barrel fermented. Do you have any more? Yeah. It's almost like it's becoming our unintended identity. Yeah. Like <laughs> Blanc degree is our baby. That's the most indicative of us and our sure. style and our production. But most people are coming in and being like, hey, you got the barrel from it. <laughs> like, you got it, bro. <laughs> yeah. That was a mistake. <laughs> we are making more, though. It, it, it shows, like, the barrel fermented is, like, intended to be kind of the most boisterous, opulent, alcoholic, everything you want turned up to the maximum. <laughs> and and uh, people love that. Like, <laughs> like I, I was super surprised. It's more Washington than uh, our other blends. Yeah. Mm. pretty big yeah well and it doesn't like you said a lot of times um oak chardonnays you're gonna get that kind of like malolactic kind of creaminess going on yeah. um and it doesn't have any of that it's just kind of got that nice like kind of roundness to it mm -hmm. it takes off the edge of the acid a little bit and it's yeah yeah, yeah so our next release is is that barrel it's okay. our newest barrel nice and uh we doubled down we doubled down on okay. <laughs> we doubled down on that so, barrel for so sure. fingers crossed it comes out good. Yeah. yeah. Nah, yeah. We, we tasted it the other day with a cigar. And I was like, wow, this is gonna kill people and like <laughs> in, in the best possible way too. Oh man. Yeah. That's oh. it, it's cool. We were we're happy with it. I'm happy with it. Yeah. Does end up with almost like a um like a whiskey characteristic with those like really heavy barrel tannins going on. Mm. It has some of those barrel tannins, but I think the most unique feature about this one that separates it from the previous is it almost has this like distinct salinity to it. Like a, in a good way. Yeah, I thought that was gross too. Yeah. When he said I it, salinity is important. You need, you need salt for, for flavor. You know, if you're right. going to have a, a cocktail, put it's a more modern idea, but adding a little bit of saline uh, solution to it is, is not, not a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. It's just enough salinity where you feel like you're uh, sitting on the Mediterranean on a yacht, you know? Yeah, you're okay. sitting on a yacht and a big wave just crashed and landed one single drop in your glass. Uh, so what you're saying is this is going to be the, the Isla Scotch of yeah, sparkling wines. Uh, yeah. It's got the iodine and the yeah. sea salt. and the, Yep, it's briny. It's, yeah. it's kind of, it's, so it, it definitely encapsulates the original barrel uh, boisterousness, but it, it adds some sort of refinement to it. Mm. Um, and I, I'm happy, really happy with this one. It was, so after we did our initial release, uh, Matthew, Andrew and I all got together and we had a big blending session to do more because we were like, oh my God. It's been two weeks. We have no more wine. Um, <laughs> Literally. So, so we got together and we we tasted all the wines and um, we were talking. No, oh, no, we can't add more barrel to this because we had some barrel mm -hmm. base left over, and we're like, no, we can't add more barrel. No. But we did. But we can't. And then and then at the very end of it, we we're like, you know what? Let's add all the barrels and see together. <laughs> so, all of it. All of it. In. And it's like, oh wow. 
How does that work? Okay. It's going in. Actually. <laughs> there's, there's something that people always ask me is like, how do you guys come up with your blends? People are always thinking we're, we're going to be disagreeing on everything and be fighting, you know, rock, paper, scissors, whatever it takes. Um, but I, I would say we, we always kind of agree on what the final blend is. Strangely. I, I, strangely. But then I always like look back and we kind of did this thing where for a long time we would like each week we would get a bottle of champagne and eat fried chicken. So <laughs> or our, hot or hot dogs, yeah. um, really great pairings for sparkling wines. Um, but kind of, I feel like all of our palates are based on the same champagnes because mm. we always drink champagne and ate fried chicken and hot dogs and potato chips. Yeah. So sure. we all kind of have that same benchmark and kind of vision of what we perceive sparkling wine to be. So sure. we always kind of agree on what the product should be. I feel like, I feel like I need elaboration on that now though. Like what's, what's kind of the, the palette that built this, uh, in terms of like the, oh, the, the, the champagnes you grew we up spent, on. We spent, weeks every every like friday or saturday the three of us would sit down uh watch some seinfeld have about two dozen hot dogs each (laughs) and uh glasses some we'd find a champagne online or in the stores and we'd try it uh have our hot dogs and uh we started we started a literal collection of the bottles that we really enjoyed Mm -hmm. and again we always for whatever reason agreed on what those bottles were um and it also helps to uh, own a wine shop to select great sparkling wines well yeah <laughs> so then to elaborate on that um other than tiridus because obviously everyone should go buy a bottle of tiridus at least two but two, if, three, if they four. don't live in washington it may be a little trickier to find not necessarily oh but well anyways we'll allude on that later <laughs> anyway um what are what are your general like if someone was like i want a really good oh, bottle man, of champagne this is like, another argument for sure well let's, well, we all, let's argue mm. <laughs> I think we all, you talk about like if someone wants a good bottle of sparkling or champagne, champagne. Uh, sparkling in general. Like we'll, we'll make it broad. Oh man. So, you, you know, you're asking the wrong group of people because we enjoy like so many different, we have okay, so okay, many. Okay. Well, we will narrow it down. Let's say, um, I think champagne's like too, everyone likes champagne. Let's say Prosecco. He's here. Instead of Prosecco, I'm going to go Moscato Diasti. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is the, this is the classic, um, it's, it's the classic fault wine mm-hmm. for, for wine snobs. Splash here. Oh, yeah, please. Um, also this I, I, I second uh, Andrew because Moscato Dasty is a vastly underrated wine. So, I mean, to that point, I actually don't know what that is. So, like, please <laughs> elaborate. You want me to talk about it? You talk about it. Yeah, you talk. Oh, I, yeah. I, I mean, I've it sounds like it's so, Andrew's so, passion. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, Moscato Diasti. The, it comes from the name Moscato is the grape. Mm-hmm. Diasti is the region that it comes from. Um, so Moscato Diasti, as a wine style, it's a slightly bubbly, real sweet, low alcohol wine. Okay. So going from the chemistry, it's about five to seven percent alcohol. Mm-hmm. The atmospheres is about two, correct? Two to four. Two to, two to four. So yeah. half of champagne mm-hmm. or conventional, traditional method sparkling wines, and it's slightly viscous because it's so sweet right so this is the thing that you get when you're just starting to drink wine this is that okay. super sweet slightly bubbly and it was overdone I, for a long time in mass i was going so to say rep. when you said moscato it was like the only moscato i know is like orange like really sickly sweet wine that you get at the grocery store like it that's it it's got okay. a it's got a bad rep which i think andrew's gonna yeah, it, it has a very bad rep because it was mass produced 
for the right reason. I mean, sure. consumers love it. It has the sweetness. It has the alcohol. Very easy to make. Mm-hmm. Very minimal intervention in the process. So it's cheap as well. Yeah. So everything about it is perfect to get into the consumer's hand and get the consumer to come back and buy another bottle. It's addictive. It's delicious. <laughs> but they overdid it. And now it has a horrible rap to it. Just like yeah. Beaujolais had for a while. It was mass produced, got a bad rep. Or Chianti. Chianti is in the, kind of the same boat. So <laughs> these these people have this bad vision on it. But if you get a nice Moscato Diasti from like a boutique producer in Northern Italy, mm-hmm. it's delicious. We specifically have this one that's DOCG and single vineyard Moscato Diasti. It's ridiculous. Mm. It's yeah. like, ugh. To second like Matt's, like uh, Matt's little wine, that wine, I, I happened to be working at uh, the shop one day and uh, one of our uh, wine representatives came in with the importer of a certain portfolio that they carry and he's from Italy and he was so starstruck that we had a, this single, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so starstruck that we had a single vineyard, Moscato d'Asti, it's, it's the best one in Italy, he said, and it sits on the shelf at $19. Less, it's like 16. It, it, actually, yeah. 16 bucks, and um, he's like, oh my God, you have to save this, I'm gonna come back for more. And, and, <laughs> and an importer from Italy from, bought mm-hmm. some, some Moscato d'Asti from us. That's amazing. And um, the reason why this is like such a significant thing in my mind, to second Andrew point is that, you know, we go to class and uh, you have to have three things for wine quality. You have to have length, intensity, both in the nose and the palate, and you have to have complexity. And that's what you judge wine quality by. Mm-hmm. But Moscato Asti is the perfect, is the perfect candidate to just it's the antithesis. It's, yeah. it's the perfect candidate to just wreck that theory and the wine. crushable wine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and because it has intensity, it has um, tons of uh, like length to it and mm-hmm. and powerfulness, but it pretty much only has like this incredibly juicy fruit, very very fresh. Right. And by all standards, it should always be considered an excellent quality wine, if not mm-hmm. outstanding. So it's like, why do people not take it seriously? And that's like. That's just like one of the cool things at, at work, like working in, in owning non-vintage wines. I, I feel like, it, it, granted, not as a winemaker, didn't yeah. go to viticultural school. The sweetness, I think, is a turnoff for most yeah, people. Of course, there are a few that you don't have to take seriously. You know, there are a right. few that are that oh, yeah, exception yeah, of what Gabriel was saying. Right, very, right, very right. bad Moscato Diastis, very sure. bad Moscatos out there. But there are those really, really high right. quality ones that we're talking about. But, you know, Gabe saying how, you know, by all standards, they sh- it should be an excellent wine. It, to me, as an outsider, it seems like the obvious missing link would be you know, residual sugar or um, whatever. Some of the, the best wines in the world that are the most highly rated are the sweetest wines in the Some world. Some of your favorite sure. Washington producers. Man. <laughs> we don't need to talk <laughs> about that. Well, I've, I've gone, Mark and I talked about that a fair bit, actually. Uh, oh, my goodness. Because it is a, well, not just RS, but the, you know, addition of sugar to make your crappy red wine palatable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yes. Which is unfortunately commonplace. And, yeah. Well, a yeah. lot of things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'll avoid that. Yeah. Back to the Moscato yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't want to dunk on, on Washington wine producers uh, too much. Not only Washington. I mean, well, no, it's worldwide. Every, it, Yeah, absolutely worldwide. Um, My favorite sparkling. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, unless you had more to say about. No, I think uh, Moscato Diasti is just delicious. I know you said excluding champagne because everyone loves champagne. But the, the three, I like champagne a lot. I uh, 
I'm obsessed with champagne. Yeah. Um, and there's three main grapes that go into the blend. Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, which pretty much no one ever hears of, no one ever has heard of, even though they drink champagne, is Pinot Meunier. Yeah. Um, and it's this, this delicious, early ripening, uh, easy to deal with red grape that grows in very cold areas. And mm. it's got this unbelievably delicious fruity like quality to it. It's used pretty much just as an addition of, of fruit to the blend. Um, it doesn't age well. Like it only go five ish years before it starts f- fizzling away. Um, so it goes really well in a blend because mm-hmm. it adds that fruit, but it doesn't have good longevity. Um, so if you find like a champagne that's 100% or heavy majority of Pinot Meunier, it's ex- it's it's almost striking of how uh, how much it actually adds to that blend. If you like the first time I tasted a 100% blend of Pinot Meunier. It was it was delicious, and then when you go back and taste another champagne, and it's got ten percent, twenty percent, you really can like taste that Pinot Meunier that's in there. You can tell like if you were to try it next to uh, another champagne that didn't have any, mm-hmm. you could really notice even at the small quantity how much it really adds to the blend. So I think it's like a unsung star of champagne. What kind of profile does it tend to add then? Because I, like you said, I've probably had it and just not realized yeah but. absolutely that's why you got to try the so like in in champagne the majority of of what you're tasting in champagne and the things that provide the longevity of champagne and the ageability of champagne and that classic sort of like um citrus fading into like um lemon ring pie and that type of like really classic champagne and chardonnay Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and Chardonnay is a hardy varietal. It's it's cold hardy. It's, it grows well there, and um, very very nice in Champagne. And it kind of makes up the majority of what they call Tite de Cuvée, which is the best of of Champagne's producers' portfolios. Mm-hmm. Um, however, like Matthew was Matthew was saying, was that Pinot Meunier adds that vibrant young sort of flavor profile, and those flavors really reflect. Depending on how the wine is produced, they can reflect all the way to some like redder fruits, yeah. to like really really nice, interesting stone fruit, yeah. more ripe apple, um, pear, peach skin. Like that's that's one of the most fascinating things. We had a Pinot Meunier not too long ago, maybe maybe like four or five months ago. That that was absolute peaches and cream. It was is beautiful. that almost getting into kind of that like like Vignet territory then? Well, I wouldn't not, say not quite, quite as far. Uh, not quite as aromatic. Okay. Um, not it's as. You have to remember it's a red grape. Well, the, yeah, that's the other question I was going to have is, um, does it tend to express more as like a like a rosé style or a um, blanc de noir or something the, like that? The blend itself typically is a blanc de noir, like a completely white mm. uh, blanc. But it, it the Pinot Meunier lends a lot of that like darker red fruit that right. kind of is usually hidden in the, the end of the right. palate that you're but used to getting the the yeast, you're used to getting the apple, the pear, whatever. I, I assume it's like most red grapes where it's just red skin with like clear fruit. Yes, um, yeah. Unlike, what is it, two varietals or something like yeah. that that are I like red throughout. The show. Yeah. yeah. That was drilled into our heads from- Is that right? Class, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> VVMYBA1 and VVMYBA2. <laughs> Okay. The two genes that are responsible for that. <laughs> I had. Neither did I. Andrew's got the science. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. For better or worse, Andrew has yeah, the we science. could go all, all night about talking about wine science, for sure. We're going to have to do, uh, one, of, one of these days we'll have you back over, we'll do a live stream, and we'll just like geek out about science and stuff for like four hours. I'll miss that one. I'll sit out for that. <laughs> Part two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll also drink a lot, so I mean. Yeah, that's fine. All right, I'll be there. 
Yeah, uh, I guess it comes to me in terms of favorite sparkling wines. I'm going to be very honest. Um, the allure of sparkling wines was gifted to me by Matt. I, okay. I, I'm like the old curmudgeon of the group. I swear, <laughs> I swear. And I'm okay with it now. I mean, it's fine. It's who so I you're am. out there just drinking like heavy oak cabs. Ah, he was. Know, he was. That, that, that's not too far off. It was nothing but Barolos and Brunellos. Yeah. Um, very traditional right bank. You know, I so my little bit of background, I, I spent most of my time before going to school in a wine shop from like 14 to 20. I worked in a wine shop in, wow. Europe, in Europe. And my, you know, obviously when you're working in a wine shop in Europe, you uh, deal mostly with classics. Right. So so people would bring in Chateau Pomer, they would bring in... Uh, what, what part of Europe, by the way? Uh, so I, I lived in Cyprus, a Mediterranean island. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, really horrible place. To uh, terrible. Terrible vacation. You know, the ugliest. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, right, um, right. you know, I, I was trained on classics, you know. Yeah. People, you know, our boss would take us out for a Christmas uh, dinner every every year, and we would always have, you know, Grand Cru. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I know, a troubled, troubled, t- just troubled times. Just really yeah, we, we would have, uh, you know, the best of, of the best. And uh, so I was really a classics guy. Yeah. And um, that speaks true to, like, some of the picks that I have at non-vintage wines. <laughs> Um, not that I didn't love, love champagne. We we had a, a 1992 Onatique Dom Perignon Rosé, and it and it was like yeah, Mr. Moneybags. Over here. <laughs> well, hey, 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 who hey, had that? Uh, old boss did that, not me. Um, <laughs> and obviously, incredibly elegant wines, mm-hmm. well aged, well taken care of. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> basically, when when it comes to me and sparkling wines, the the trigger in the ignition for me to get really involved with the process was Matthew expressing the interest in and like the flavor and the aroma and the the peculiar nature of sparkling wine and then also the very very rigorous science backbone mm-hmm. of the process which I find completely fascinating and those kind of mesh really well for me and, and how I love sparkling wine and I would say kind of right now my my current pick for sparkling can't say champagne right darn you can you can say champagne. i took the only unique part of champagne, so i mean so. i guess i i'm gonna i'm gonna go against the grain there there is a prosecco producer that i have yet to find in the u.s that i'm like kind of in in love with oh yeah uh, yeah it's docg prosecco by juicy um really beautiful wines and they make a uh um make a brute obviously but they make a extra dry and in in the italian sort of nomenclature extra dry is actually less dry than the brute i'm really? sorry yeah i i didn't know so no yeah so brute is the brute uh, obviously the most uh, dry yeah. and then um extra dry is is a little sweeter than that and it was beautiful it's beautiful i'd wine. always wondered with sorry i don't mean to go off on a tangent but no, um, you see you know extra brute on a label all the time it's like okay but it was already bone dry yeah. How do you get more than bone dry? So, no. Okay. <laughs> so the, 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 each one of those actually has a legal classification. I, I assumed, but yeah. I just... So like a brute, for example, is in champagne. We're talking champagne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're talking zero grams all the way up to 15 grams per liter of sugar. So 15 grams is really it, sweet. That's really sweet. Yeah. But, you know, in, in the world of champagne, you could actually not even taste 15 grams if you're having a very acere, very sure. acidic uh, champagne. And, um, you know, like other other ranges, like mm-hmm. extra brute, are, you know, zero to six. Gotcha. Grams. So would demisec then be. So demisec, demisec is like 
uh, I believe 18 to 26. So it's okay. So it's pretty high. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, don't quote me on the numbers exactly. It's been a while since I've reviewed my uh, yeah. sweetness levels. Of no, but that's a, but that's a lot more than I expected because. Um, but that's the beauty of champagne. I mean, I was. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be the acid in that, I guess, that, uh, that yeah, really yeah. cuts through because you don't yeah. notice until. I mean, sec tastes sweet. Yeah. Right? But, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, so that that trend has become much less in the last five to ten years. But, you don't see very many champagnes out there that are that sweet anymore. Right. right. Most. Most champagnes right now are, are getting like, barefoot bubbly. And yes, three to seven grams is kind yeah. of like you're right right now, but also you know, brute nature and things like that are yeah. very very. That's common. trending high right now. Which is we do a lot of brute nature too, mm. which is, is just bone dry. Yeah, absolutely. Zero added. Yeah, I I mean that's what I'm here for. I really want the to taste the the wine and the terroir and yeah. like the 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 process of making it. But anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent. You were you were saying. No, I, I, I think that um, some DOCG Prosecco mm-hmm. in, in, you know, in the hills, not on the, oh, yeah, not yeah, on the yeah. flat lanes, whatever, <laughs> in the hills is where I, where I would like to stick my nose kind of the rest of my life, you know? Yes. Yeah. Beautiful too. wines. I mean, yeah, top, I think everybody's with you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd sip Prosecco every night if I could, a little right. Aperol in there too. Oh, oh dude. Hey. Yeah, get, some, get a little spritz going. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, do we need to get on to sparkling cocktails next year? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I also want to mention that I thought we were restricted to Italy. Um, Moscato <laughs> Diasti is not my favorite all-time sparkling wine. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I did. I did say Prosecco to start, so I guess um, that's fair. Um, we did go broad, though. So what? What would you say, Andrew? I'm not a stickler, really. Uh, <laughs> I think everything's exciting, but if I'm gonna pull up any, like, I'm not. Like, if I'm opening up a sparkling wine, I prefer something with less intense bubbles, per se. I like okay. a more uh, just lighter carbonation. Um, and a prime example of that is Vino Verde. I love the slight carbonation of Vino Verde. I think it's so wonderful. Um, so I'd have to put Vino Verde as my favorite kind of sparkling wine. So you would not recommend someone gets your uh, old release? <laughs> no, I definitely would. <laughs> <laughs> Said it's just if I'm if I'm drinking a glass of sparkling wine day in day out. Yeah, no. I'd rather have something a little bit less. I'm, uh, that interior is of course. Yeah, yeah, Andrew, yeah Andrew's that alone that in that statement. We all think you should have proper bubbles. And <laughs> well, I mean, okay, to that point, and we were talking um, champagne cocktails too. You brought up. Oh, I think yes. there's a time and place for for both for sure. Um, I'm I'm kind of with you, Andrew. If I'm just having like a like a brunch. Okay, day drinking, right? Um, but if you're sip, if you're sitting there, holiday season's a great example. I don't know if you guys are like my family, but you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas comes around, you pop a champagne at like 10 a.m. and you just keep going. Um, yep. Maybe yeah. no, uh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> so, um, but you know, having something with like lower bubbles, it's a little easier on the stomach as the day goes on. And, yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. But if I'm making something with cocktail, I'm making a spritz, um, you know doing something along those lines, French 75, something like that. Having the really, really high carbonation content, I think is is great because it'll keep carbonation throughout the drink. It's not just like really nice when you take a first sip and you know by the time you finish it, it's flat. Um, we love sparkling wine cocktails. It's actually kind of, we kept that in mind while producing yeah. this wine. It's hard to admit um, as a winemaker yeah. to your audience that your wine goes perfectly with orange juice or you know perfectly blended into something. But it really does. Tiertis is 
you know, it's it's just something that we considered, and that also led to our choice of doing everything brut natural with mm-hmm. zero added sugar whatsoever, because that just lends flexibility to the bartender, right. the mixer, whoever's going. Because you can that. always you can always go sweeter, but you can't take away sweetness. Mm. Yeah. So we wanted to give that power to whoever's mixing them or just drinking them alone. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You so, know how we were talking about how we made a lot of trial wines that may or may not have made the cut. Uh, most of those that the maybe rest ha- have not yeah. accidentally got mixed up with a lot of Seven Up and uh, Lemon oh, Rinds, and more <laughs> so, Seinfeld, and, and, there you go. and a lot of jugs, so, <laughs> hot tubs, and things like that. A lot of hot tubs. Uh, okay, so now we've breached the topic. We got to go into the the favorite champagne cocktail, um, and or sparkling cocktail. For me, it's actually champagne cocktail. With the you know the cognac the ango, Never had it's it. a it's a good it's a good drink. Sounds good. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Champagne cocktails. I would have there. to say uh, French seventy five. Yeah. That's a great drink. It's just simple, clean. I love the aromatics that it brings out of the gin. Hundred percent agree. All my friends at home make fun of me for this because they don't sit around with us and drink them. <laughs> but I'm really into like the very classic wine spritzer. You know, splash of sparkling wine, splash of lemon lime soda and ice cube you know and that's okay. it okay yeah so like a wine spritz not like an aperol spritz or something like that well like, i love aperol spritz that's my number two okay very close to number one but uh what's the what's the take actually get gave you go first no so i uh, maybe i've done a little too much experimentation <laughs> when it comes to uh let's hear the custom spec then messing, yeah, yeah. Up, messing around so uh you know i have a i have a hispanic girlfriend and it's 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 magnificent because she has a lot of unique uh, Hispanic sodas, like Jaritos, which Ooh. is yeah. which is like an awesome soda. Yeah, and uh, Jaritos little, grapefruit, a little like bit that. of Jaritos, a little uh, you know, uh, you know, a couple of lemons, leftover lemons after some kind of salad or something, mm. and uh, you know, mix it up with some ice. Carry that guy around the rest of the, the rest of the night. <laughs> and is I, this in? That, Stick it in a boot. I, 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 I have a big you know big mug. You know, you just walk around with that guy. It's sparkling. It's interesting. It's got a lot of lemon. And, good. and you know, it does sound really it, good. It's it's honestly this past summer. I, I think more often than not, I fell asleep with that guy. It's like a it's like a low ABV Paloma. It's yeah, almost what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's absolutely delicious. And it, even her and her family are like, we got to get some tiritas. We got to get some tiritas just for those mixers for sure. So. Mm. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because we, you know, Aperol spritz is at least for, for me, when I think of a, a bartender champagne cocktail, that's the one that comes to mind. Um, what do you guys feel? How do you feel, you know, sticking in Italy with the new aperitif liqueurs um, or Amaro's, I guess, going bold and putting Campari in it instead? I do enjoy. You're well, talking my language. Yeah, I'm Andrew's a Campari a, over Aperol person. Yeah, Ooh, and yes. Andrew's alone in that statement. We both really like Aperol, Listen, but I do like a Campari. It, Campari is an angry Aperol. It's a it's <laughs> it's Aperol that like put its big boy pants on. You're right, completely. <laughs> Aperol, listen, listen, this is the most simple thing. Like you can walk down any street in it. I mean, I, I don't even have to, to lie about this and pretend like I know because my brother went to school in Italy mm-hmm. and literally you can walk down the street anywhere and you can just hold your hand up and an Aperol spritz will end up there by the end of the street. And it's not a Campari, it's an Aperol spritz. You can go to a gas station in Italy and buy Aperol I'm not saying spritz. a Campari spritz is the proper cocktail. It's I'm just, not the proper cocktail. Like in a grill or something? Look, man. 
No, um, I I yeah, I like think the apple is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of yeah, you know, let's throw some gin in there. Let's have some fun. You know. A little sweet vermouth, be a good time. Yeah, mm. I get down. Actually, that would probably be really good. Top it with a little bit of sparkling wine and some tiramis yeah, on top. Some yeah. tiramis on top, man. <laughs> yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> That's kind of the fun of it. As we've been making more sparkling wines of quality, we've definitely been able to see that if you make a good cocktail with good sparkling wine, it makes the world a difference. Yeah, we've shown that. I've actually time done and time a, again. Um, I was with a a certain place that serves brunch, and. Um, <laughs> I did same way Gabe was saying like let's do a side by side of my sparkling versus whatever you're currently using mm -hmm. and I did a side by side mimosa tasting with ours and two others and it was apparent that ours was uh, really good which is not necessarily just a, to boost ourselves um, as a sparkling wine in a mixer but that that your your mixer itself does makes a difference you know yeah I mean fever tree nailed it i'm pretty sure they're the ones with the slogan when three quarters of your cocktail is the mixer mm -hmm. the mixer should be great <laughs> i definitely didn't get it verbatim but the message <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true though and i mean shout out to fever tree they make a damn good product yeah. absolutely i really like fever trees tonics quite a bit and their ginger beer is good and yeah anyway <laughs> fever tree uh yeah, my dms us. are open let's go <laughs> <laughs> so uh I want to throw the one question back at you. What's your favorite sparkling wine? I don't drink enough sparkling to be like, this is my favorite of all time. Um, do you do you have a benchmark that you compare things to? Honestly, um, Treveri was for a long time the only, you know, like the big Washington sparkling yeah. winemaker. And so being a Washington wine fan, they were the one that I was always like, you know, it's really cheap. I can get, uh, at least if you go into the tasting room, it's like under 20 bucks, like it's stupid cheap. Um, or it was a couple years ago, last time I was in there. Um, and it's, you know, a decent product. Um, and so that was always kind of my benchmark. But then, you know, when you guys showed up um, and trying a bunch of stuff from Mark and different regions, just kind of expanded you know and saw the possibilities uh but you know kind of what i, I was saying i i don't drink enough sparkling to be like this is my definitive go-to it's just kind of like i have flavor profiles i look for and then it's just kind of i want to explore and see what different regions have to offer and different labelings have to offer because i feel like even outside of like maybe some French French designations where everything's like really, really strict. Um, and even then I feel like there's a lot of variety in, in what ends up in the bottle. Um, but yeah, it, it's so hard to be like this one, uh, style is, is this flavor profile. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just, I'm in a place with my wine drinking, especially sparkling wine drinking, uh, right now where I'm just, looking to explore, try new things, be open-minded about it. So, If you were to uh, grab a bottle of sparkling for like your anniversary or for a congratulations gift, what are you mm -hmm. going for? Uh, I'm probably looking at like, I'm kind of a cheap ass with wine, uh, to be honest. So I'm probably like a nice bottle. I'm probably looking at like a 50 to $60 oh, price point. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking for something that's high acid, uh, a good amount of carbonation, probably like mid carbonation. Um, 
acid and bright fruit. So I like a lot of that kind of like lemon, tangerine, uh, really zesty flavors. Um, yeah, so it's like a pretty typical Wuvlico. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is a great, great wine. Yeah. Great. Um, but that's kind of my go-to. So um, like I said, though, I'm just, this year I'm just trying to try more stuff, expand the palate. And... No, that's exactly what everyone should do when it comes to wine is is try to expand their palate, figure yeah. out what they like, and then after they kind of do the round robin of the entry into the wine classics, you know, you kind of like pick your pick your poison and uh i think that i finally got into that and um happy for it it's what everyone needs to do is that transition that journey in wine yeah that's my my biggest um that's the biggest reason that i really am happy that we're doing these weekly rotating tastings at non-vintage um for that reason both for myself selfishly and also for people who come in there are like a couple people who come in every week and you know a couple more who come in every other week and um, I think it's really fun uh, having people come in and whether they say they like this style and so they came in to try from other places or they've never even heard of it and so they want to try new things. I think it's like really exciting to see people come in who want to learn, who want to try new things. And mm. so I'm like real happy we have that platform. Yeah, yeah, and I, sorry, um, I, I just really enjoy that you guys are doing not just the normal stuff, mm-hmm. right? And, and even with the normal stuff, like I said earlier, you're doing kind of sub-regions yeah, for the most yeah. part. Um, but, you know, you you do like a South American tasting or a Australia tasting or these things. It's like, you're not necessarily, they're not the big regions that everyone's going to get really excited about, but they're interesting and, and important. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just going back to what Matt is saying is one of my favorite things about the shop mm-hmm. is when we first opened, people would come in and be like, hey, like I'm, I only drink Washington wine what Washington wine do you have? And then you'd be like, hey, we have this, but we also have this. And you'd be like, no, I want the Washington. But now they come back three or four times later and now they're like, oh, so what is that one that you recommended? So like, not that we're trying to take away from the Washington wine, but we just want to give people the opportunity to explore the rest of the world and put it into perspective of what Washington is in the the pond of world of wine which i think improves the washington wine industry yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah i mean not necessarily washington wine specific but i i mean when i was in a couple uh, i guess it was like a month or so ago now um you guys were doing the uh like organic wine and like (laughs) yeah the natural wine natural wine tasting um and i like i had natural wines before but they're like not great ones um but no, it changed my mind, honestly. Uh, it was some of the, like, it it opened my mind to a new yeah. avenue, right? Yeah. It's like really interesting flavors, really unique mm. minerality, and it was just super fun. Yeah, the, fir- um, the first natural wine I ever tasted, um, which I guess I'm extremely fortunate to have had this as my first natural wine experience, it tasted exactly like, like a Entenmann's cherry pie, you know, <laughs> like it, it was insane how it tasted. Yeah. I never tasted anything like that. Never will again. Um, and so I kind of, now I really enjoy drinking. I don't like to say natural wines, I like minimal intervention, or I guess natural is okay, but like minimal yeah. intervention style wines, um, really let things do what they do. And the, the grape speaks for itself. Yeah. No, it's a super interesting avenue of wine. And I, I, I wish more people were exploring that kind of stuff. Cause it's, it's both just sustainable and ends up with a really interesting product. Definitely. Yeah. Natural wine is a very, very interesting thing. 
<laughs> I mean, that in the best the, way. The classes. No, I know. I, I, that, I've, that came I've also across been... as the uh, the opposite of what I said at the beginning. Just like mm-hmm, it was interesting. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I've also been somewhat of a recent convert into the natural wine move situation. Yeah. Um, I, there's a, there's many natural wines where I'm like, oh my god, I'm so jealous. I want to make this. I really want this. Um, maybe I'm not brave enough yet to be like 100% natural wine and don't have the the means to do so. So. I'm not there yet, but um, mm-hmm. some of the, like we had actually a sparkling wine not too long ago that was that was a natural wine and I was like, holy shit. I, <laughs> Which one? I am. Uh, Denaria? Yeah. Yeah, and, that was good. And, and I'm like. And plus oh, you know, And it's, you know, these type of experience convert you and then. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a harsh balance yeah. in life. We, as store owners, for a store in a very <laughs> vast area with no other stores, sure. specific wine boutique shops, mm-hmm. um, we have the power to kind of cater this wine selection, which is really cool, and it almost gives us like a sense of duty to provide sustainable wines, which are good for the environment farming-wise and minimal, minimal intervention, because we are stewards of the land and we have to leave it at the same quality, if not better, than where we start using it. So we have to do that. And natural wine is kind of the first one to fit that bill. But the thing we struggle with most is a lot of times people rationalize faults as natural wine. And it creates heavily faulted wines that just scare off most consumers. So our goal is to cater those sustainable, biodynamic, very uh, regenerative, farming practiced wines, but ones without faults that really get people who haven't had it hooked. <laughs> right. You, you can make a minimal intervention natural wine, um, and without you could do faults. it very lazily, and it could be faulted. It can You can claim it's minimal intervention, so that's your excuse for being lazy with not watching it, not making sure it goes well. Or you can be very attentive and take a lot of care of this wine and still do it minim, minimally intervening, and yeah. that's still like a natural minimal intervention wine. And that's kind of what Andrew was saying is that some people, just because they have this natural label on it, they feel that it's okay that it's faulted. You know, oh, I don't mind that it, it boiled a little bit in that tank when in reality they should just close the window that the sun's coming through, you know? <laughs> right, yes. right. And I think that maybe the biggest thing for natural wine is that there's a difference between a natural wine and then um, a, a low impact wine. Right, right. So I think that maybe some wires get crossed, especially in terms of marketing for natural wines, where a natural wine might actually be worse for the environment Mm -hmm. than, let's say, a conventionally made wine. And that's something that people are going to have to start looking at, is that although it's very, very interesting to make these natural wines and market them as such, but staying true to the whole premise of natural wine is to make sure that it's a low impact wine because there's many natural wine producers out there that actually have some of the highest wastes of all wineries ever um just due to the fact that they can't they can't you know manipulate the the one not manipulate but to do the necessary adjustments that are necessary for wine to be stable um just as an example if you do, if you have to like I said, natural wine project goes south and you have to dump that wine into a waste stream, mm-hmm. it would take nearly like 
six or eight months to cycle through 500 gallons of waste wine really? in a in a aeration pond and that's six months of an aerator going on that could power 10 12 homes mm -hmm. for that same period of time so these things like low impact is what i'm really passionate about i i would like to have a, a zero waste water winery that yeah. would be a big passion project for me that's um, gotta be really hard to do though with it's especially in this part of the world where irrigation is such a so that it is very possible um it's being mindful mm -hmm. um washington doesn't experience such a, a water issue as other places like say california but right. like the national average for water use per gallon of wine made in america is around 75 gallons where in europe is around 12. Right. so uh th there's like these these other sort of numbers that are also important to the natural wine process. Is that any way skewed though for the European numbers of regions that you're just not allowed to irrigate? Um, so that's just in the production of wine. That's not including uh, viticulture of the wine. Oh, oh is that so right? That's only wine production, not great. So like farm. spraying gotcha. out tanks, okay. yeah, or yeah, cleaning yeah. surfaces and such like that. Gotcha. Yeah, and um, the gross misuse of wastewater in in production of small wineries and large ones too mm -hmm. uh, is a serious. Issue. A issue to be addressed gotcha. yeah and uh, like that that's what I would be really really passionate about especially like in our own projects is to like limit wastewater and be conservative with the environment the environmental impact of the winery of the vineyard um, and like I think the biggest threat for for quality and like the 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 prop that natural wine has right now in our environment because it's a great cause is the fact that people will fall through the cracks as being high impact natural wine producers. Right. They say natural wine, everyone just assumes it's a, yeah. a low impact. That's sustainable. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's one of the main problems why natural wine is such a loose term is people are going mm -hmm. minimal, minimal intervention now just yeah. because natural wine could mean anything. Right. So. It's, it's and then biodynamic term. is a whole different it's animal. It's a whole right? different oh, animal. Yeah. I've different. heard it's got a lot of like witchcraft going on. Like, um, not sometimes. necessarily witchcraft, sometimes. but astrology it's, is definitely. It's, it's, oh, it actually is astrology. Okay. So, yeah. so there's some stuff joke, going on, but yeah, to the same point, oh my God, I wish, I wish <laughs> it didn't work out so well, but sometimes it's, it makes sense. Yeah. There's a lot of like studies that have happened recently, the past couple decades, that study these like strange things they do. They bury these cow horns that is filled with this tea made of uh, the feces of other animals. Yeah, those are the kind of stories I've heard. And yeah. and it works beautifully in the vineyards. Every year they make mm. wonderful wines. So these studies, when they go back and do it, and it's basically just like they're adding microorganisms to the soil, and it makes the soil health better, which improves the vines, right. and therefore your your wine is better. Sure. So there's like a lot of these strange, crazy things that these old hundred right. years ago they did. Um, but it's also coincidentally worked out also tied to which I think what Matthew is saying is right and cool. Mm -hmm. You know, manure is <laughs> a very prevalent form of fertilizer, yeah, you know, right. and just letting it sit and ferment, you're going to increase the biodiversity and subsequently in the soil, which you spread it on, which that's great. But a lot of that is cycled. Like you can only do it on a certain moon cycle. Like there's a certain phase of the mm -hmm. moon cycle when you can bury it, and there's a certain phase of the moon cycle when you can bring it up. Right. So that's where I would go into the oh, it's wishy washy. Yeah. But then the fertilizer and that that like I I'll stand by that. But yeah. there's mm -hmm. it's just it's gonna come to our generation to figure out what's necessary and what's not. Sure. Yeah, and and but the beautiful thing about 
talking about the biodynamic or organic processes is that like things like that, even the moon cycles, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, moon cycles is a terrible way to describe that. But <laughs> like for an instance, like we all learn in viticulture class, the less frequent that you compact the earth in which your grapes are growing, mm-hmm. the more porosity your soil has, sure. and it can increase your vigor. It can also increase your, your, you know, your microbiology in your soil, which will help the vineyard. water holding capacity, it, all of these things, which are uptake. huge. And that's just based off of a timing and the amount of time you're in a certain area in your vineyard. So um, that of course could relate to, to so much in your viticulture when you're using and implementing these, these, biodynamic processes and it's like incredibly fascinating and um you know there's a couple of books about it that that talk about this stuff steiner yeah steiner, steiner rudolf steiner yeah. you know oh my god what steiner's it? seven lectures mm-hmm. it, it's it's kind of a bible for a lot of viticulturists biodynamic viticulturists specifically oh, wow. um i know i while i was speaking with james the vineyard manager at hedges they do biodynamic farming in there vineyards I didn't and that. Yeah, yeah so um Not he said them, every mostly. year before he starts farming that year or every vintage before the season comes around he rereads it hmm. so it's just like that's a bible for a lot of viticulturists yeah, and, a, and a brilliant man at that. I mean, not, yeah. in his time, not known for the biodynamic agriculture. Mm-hmm. It's actually spoken at during a symposium for other things. But mm-hmm. um, it's, it's super fascinating and honestly very good advice when taken with a grain of salt. Sure. Yeah. And so it's just going to be reading through those lectures and right. incorporating and implementing and manipulating and making them applicable to us. As is everything. As is everything. Yeah, is everything. yeah. Uh, things change all the time and it's it's wonderful to see that way back when people really knew how to grow fruit you know yeah. it's it's beautiful <laughs> i love that well i mean wine has been one of the most prevalent beverages throughout most of history so yeah. and absolutely it makes sense and it all goes back to champagne and sparkling wine because <laughs> is that right oh absolutely in oh, my yeah. mind it's all clear because like the, the <laughs> like one of the hardest things to explain to people is that well, I guess, I guess I guess one of the most frustrating things for some people to s- discover in the wine industry is like, okay, Bordeaux has a style. Yep. I don't understand. How did it get the style? Why is it a style? How? Do, why can't we have it? Why is it obviously because the French are very they they picked something and that's the right. only way it can ever be. Right. So the French are better at it. Exactly. And wow. the same thing is of champagne. It's like, okay, champagne's this way. Why did it have it? What's going on? And it's because of the historical implications yeah. of the area that have actually made a style and it's been there so long that they've accepted that that legitimate like from the farming practices the necessary implements from farming and the result of the necessary implements to grow that fruit are the reason why that wine is that way and it's been right. carried on through history there's a reason why champagne is sparkling in that region and it's it's been from over a thousand years ago that it was because of that reason. Right. And that's the most fascinating thing is like a style was, was dictated not because we decided to, because that particular region grew up with that. And that was because of the functional nature of making wine in that area. Mm-hmm. Champagne, you, you can't make, uh, you can, it's, <laughs> but champagne by, by, uh, by nature, the region of Champagne mm-hmm. is really only good for making sparkling wine. You can't make a good red at a Champagne. I'm sure someone is. They're pretty but. close, both in ge- geographically and uh, in um, like climate weather, to uh, Bordeaux, though, aren't they? 
No, or far, not, not far. Bordeaux. Sorry, Burgundy. Yeah, it's Champagne's yes, the most right. northern region. Yes. So, uh, Spalik Chablis, which I could be wrong, correct me, is the most northern part of Burgundy. Yes. We had a, a sparkling wine made in Chablis that was extremely similar to a Champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, because but, of their geographic closeness, it's yeah. similar weather, similar but like, terroir. When you, when you think about, like, so great example of what you're bringing up is like, okay, so Burgundy has these softer barrel-aged right. white wines and some softer red mm-hmm. wines with some appellations with some heaviness. But why is it only an hour drive to Champagne where you're getting, okay, now you have a completely different style. Yeah. And that, again, is all a function of how you could have built a winery 150 years ago. Because in Champagne, right, you have very deep cellars because it's sedimentary rock, very easy to break apart, very easy to build in. Burgundy, you can't build a cellar underground. Mm. It's very, very difficult. Um, It's a river valley, and it's also much harder rock. So cellars were not as deep. And part of the issue with Champagne, for example, is you have these very, very, very thin white wines with high acidity um, way back when, before Louis Pasteur, you didn't know yeast were the, the primary biological agent to ferment wine. Mm-hmm. Anyways, you would ferment wine and you would think it'd be dry because any person off the street would not be able to tell a fermenting wine very close to dryness or a, very, a fermenting wine in, in a little bit sweeter than that. Yep. So you end up with a situation in Champagne where you're now, okay, I'm going to transfer my wine to my cellar in the basement where it is 50 degrees. Nothing is going to ferment in 50 degrees. But as I transition that same wine out the next season to sell it in, let's say, oh, great, London, one of the largest populations in Europe at the time, it all of a sudden starts fermenting again. Now you have a sparkling product. Mm -hmm. And from the unique nature of how you make a wine in a certain region, just the functional nature of being able to build a deeper cellar than anywhere else, you've now ended up with a very unique product. And that is true. Burgundy, Bordeaux, Porto, Rioja, Mm -hmm. all of those, all the classics. Even in Prosecco, Chianti, uh, Sicily. So, so Porto, uh, that, that's an oh, interesting example. I was hoping example. we get on this one. <laughs> yeah, this, that's, of all of the ones you mentioned, that's the only one that's fortified. Right? Yeah. What's the story there? I'm so happy we can talk about it, <laughs> honestly. So I don't know how familiar you are with Porto. Uh, not overly i i know the distinction between ruby and tawny that's about it so that's fine so okay porto right is it's basically a river valley Mm -hmm. uh not dissimilar to any other river valley in wine and the exit all great wine regions have to have a port Mm -hmm. okay so bordeaux sure champagne porto Okay, so you have to be able to get your wine. Not Burgundy, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Burgundy. Well, yeah, you have a, a railroad. Plus, it was it was the capital of all kings in France for quite a while. Yeah. So Charlemagne, for example. <laughs> but um, the thing about Porto is that it's very very close to the ocean. That all wine, you know, in Porto is named after the port city Porto, but it's sure. actually aged in Villanova de Gaia. Anyways, south of that, <laughs> but into the into the region of Porto, you have a very very hot area very high altitude, very hot. So what you end up with is um, a really, really alcoholic wine. Now we're talking about Louis Pasteur again here, where you don't actually have a yeast to put in the wine. There is no commercial yeast, so you cannot ferment that. So most naturally occurring yeast would die back then around 9%, Mm -hmm. which is not dissimilar to what a wine would be like if, you know, sweet, like port. So 
you basically take this down to the port to sell it to back back to you know central cities in Europe, London, for example, and then there's a complaint that says, "Well, my wine's not very alcoholic. I want to get drunk off my port." Right. And then you add the alcohol, and that's basically how you get you end up with a port style Porto. Mm-hmm. Isn't there also um, as they would try to ship? These wines to London again is such a great example of place that should shelf stability. stability. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. and adding yeah. the higher alcohol. The, the, the story still. of how you got, um, you know, Navy Grog and things like that. Yeah. yeah, same deal. It's like you needed to survive on a shipping vessel. Yeah, yeah, and and like like Rioja is like another amazing economic solution that has now risen a region. It's mm. fascinating because literally wine economy built a region that we now accept as being a classic Rioja because there was a, a Spanish-French war. Now you can't get your wine to London from Bordeaux. So partner with Spain, you supply them with cheaper materials, American oak barrels. So you get the unique flavor of Grand Reserva Rioja, much cheaper prices. Wine still gets to London. Yeah. That's that's how you build these things, and that's incredible to think about. That wine is not just based off of what my maker's ambition; it's based off of the functional nature of building a vineyard, a winery, and a market. That's that's the coolest thing you get to learn when you get really deep into wine. Is that the possibilities are made because the world is supporting them with like legitimate business acumen. Fascinating. I love it. <laughs> that is fascinating. It is. I, that's kind of why I love it. And that's why I think that when people talk about wine and in a somewhat juvenile way where it's like, oh, well, France did that because it's the what they wanted. It's no, it's because all of this history has taken place and there's like a functional environment in which they can only exist. And they have turned that negative into their own style of wine. An extreme example of what Gabe's saying. Um, which I, is one of my favorite stories in the wine world of of where um, things are happening because that's the most that's the most functional way to do things um, is in in Vosges, Romani, which is commonly known as one of the the greatest Pinot Noir grown regions in all of uh, vineyards. Vineyards, yeah, in all of um, mini region, <laughs> mini, mini. in all of the world. You know, not just Burgundy, um, and it's broken up into all these separate uh, specific vineyards. Um, you know, Romani Conti, Echazu, all of these. And there's a story that the monks, who are the original winemakers of the world, went around and, and tasted the soil uh, in, this, <laughs> in this village, this whole area of Vosges. Um, and, and where they tasted the soil was different is where they would set the boundaries of each vineyard. Mm. So all the vineyards that are now set in the, in the village of Vosges uh, are set because the monks supposedly went around and tasted the soil, and that's what he set like, the boundaries. This is where the Torah is different. So yeah, yeah. Maybe different blocks. Exactly. That's cool. Like another really fascinating thing in Burgundy, and which is like I don't know why they don't have this on a poster somewhere because it makes the whole thing much simpler. Yeah. It's like, so for example, people get very confused when we talk about Burgundy at the wine shop or in any other region. It's like, okay, I don't understand why. Burgundy has Grand Cru and Premier Cru in all these places. And then all of a sudden, when you get to Cote de Cholonais, which is the most, one of the most southern regions, yeah. and Maconnais, mm-hmm. you don't have any more Grand Cru. It makes sense in the French wine industry to make more Grand Cru is because it'd be more expensive wine to sell, mm-hmm. right? And it could definitely support it because there's a shortage of Burgundy wine. So why didn't they? And why are there, north of this one line, yeah. Grand Cru and Premier Cru? And particularly so many Premier Cru. And they all started around 1950. 
And that's because during the time and occupation of Germany and France, German soldiers could not drink premier crew or grand crew level wines without being a war crime. Wow. Really? Yeah. So what they decided to do is when they would invade that area of France, they make all of them Everyone premier crew. And that's why the line stops at Cote de Cholonais. Huh. That's as far Germany got? As far Germany got. That's so interesting. So it, it, it like these functional things are like, wow, that makes much, much more sense now because it also leads you into these rabbit holes of like, okay, now I'm in Cote Cholonais and I'm still in a super premium region, but it's not technically premier crew. I also want to highlight that that it's a war crime to drink <laughs> the grand crew. Yeah. Germans that makes sense. Drink premier crew. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, just think about all, I mean, they raided cellars oh, yeah. in yeah. World War II. Yeah. And, you know, artwork and, and beautiful bottles of champagne. I mean, some of the best champagne mm-hmm. houses have, but were totally There's ransacked. still parts of caves yeah. in Champagne that are, are caved in, and they don't know what's behind those caved in because they don't want the Germans getting to the yeah. precious champagne. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't wait till we do that. To I Cave in part of the yeah. thing to not get the wine. Oh, man. That's awesome. Oh. Well, yeah. guys, I really, really appreciate you coming out. This oh, has yeah, been a wonderful... Wonderful conversation. Um, before we before we head off, uh, how can people find you? www.tirriddis.com or www.nv-wines.com. Nv-wines. You can also hit up our Instagrams. Uh, we're very responsive. We have the Nv Wines Instagram and also our Tiridis Instagram. Both are spelled out the same way as Andrew just described. Um, Find us at local restaurants. Please support local restaurants. Yes, stop at the shop. Say hello. Yeah, yeah. Ha- happy to taste through all the wines and uh, sort of run down our sparkling process and what we plan to do in the future. And maybe we'll see you at our tasting room in the next couple months. I love it. Yeah. Days. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, on. I really yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Thank you very awesome. much. Thanks, fellas. Yeah. Awesome. Hope to have you back soon. Be great.